This episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by Flu Buddy. Cold got you down? Chills? Fever? Sounds like you need a buddy. Flu Buddy. Fast acting Flu Buddy. Available at pharmacies everywhere. Flu Buddy! Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. And since everyone's inside, quarantined away due to a pandemic, we figured we'd use that as a theme for this week's episode of Pod Cemetery as we watch the 1994 miniseries version of Stephen King's The Stand and 2008's Quarantine. Why did we watch Quarantine and Not Wreck? We mentioned it in our last episode. We'll talk about it later in this one. Before we get to the movies, though, Kelsey, how do we start the show? Horror trivia. Give me what you got. What is the name of the cat in Pet Cemetery? Uh, church. Yes. I had to go. I was like, okay, the the dude from England in the war, <laughs> Winston Churchill Church. Okay, yeah. Kelsey. Yes. Before it was turned into a miniseries in 1994, Stephen King was originally writing a motion picture script to be directed by what famous horror movie director? Raimi? No, but good guess. Oh, because he loved... Well, Stephen King also loves another popular director. Carpenter? George Romero. Oh, Romero. Yeah, he just kept trying to cut it down and cut it down, and it was always too long. And at a certain point, he was offered the opportunity to make it into a TV miniseries. And he's like, fuck it, I'll do that. And unfortunately, Romero couldn't do the miniseries by the time they were going to make it. So instead... He got Mick Garris, who has done a couple of things with Stephen King. Yes, tell us. So let's get into it. 1994's The Stand, written by Stephen King and directed by Mick Garris, starring Gary Sinise, Molly Ringwald, Jamie Sheridan, Laura Sangiacomo, Ruby D, Ozzie Davis, Miguel Ferrer, Matt Frewer, Rob Lowe, Bill Fagerbakey, and cameos up the ass yes what is the stand about a pandemic happens and it destroys most of humanity and the people that are left specifically in america who knows what's happening in the rest of the world but in america there are two factions that we know of one faction of good and one faction of evil one is following a woman of God, one is following a demon, and they are going to supposedly have a fight. Here's a little spoiler for you guys. 80% of this movie doesn't matter. It's, it's this thing that Stephen King has a tendency to do, and a lot of writers have a tendency to do. But Stephen King gets away with it because he's an excellent writer. He writes incredible characters, he writes incredible scenes. But his overall plot work 
a lot of the time, not much really happens in his stories. <laughs> You're just enveloped in the way he's just such an incredible storyteller. But this is one of those cases where he writes 1,200 pages, which he had to cut down because that was too many. And the publisher couldn't get the spine to stay intact with 1,200 pages where it's just him writing scene to scene to scene to scene to scene. And I don't think he knew himself where the story was going because ultimately the things that impact the end of the story and its resolution, most of the movie isn't about it or most of the miniseries, I guess. (laughs) I would actually say that this miniseries, and it's because it's written by Stephen King, mm-hmm. this miniseries actually does an excellent job of following the main overarching story here. From the book. Yeah. yeah if if I were going to turn the stand into a uh, miniseries, these are pro- this is probably the main thing that, I, like, th- that's what I would stick with, too. So I understand Stephen's choices here, and Chris is absolutely right. If you've read the book, it's far worse. I say worse, but for some of us, it's better. Like, I thoroughly enjoyed The Stand, but it is not one of my favorites. It's not one that I, I've only read it once. And the reason is because Chris is correct. The stand will literally go off on very long tangents and will introduce you to a character and you're like, oh, a new character, you say, Steven. But no, you you get to learn about this person's entire life and then they're dead. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, you could be making a point about that. That's how life happens. Yes. That's what tragedy does. You might, you know, death isn't just a number. And the death counts when we have pandemics, they're not just a number. These people have lives and they've lived full lives and they were cut short because of the pandemic. So I guess you could make that argument. And I will do my best to stay away from trying to compare it to the book, there's very, like I said, because King wrote it, there are actually very few changes that I was confused about or was upset about. So I will keep that to a very bare minimum. Plus, it's been years since I've read it. Mm -hmm. You know, they are remaking The Stand into a miniseries. I know. This year. But who knows? Yeah, they say that. Right. Can they do that now? Which is yeah. hilarious. I mean, it might not actually come out this year, but as far Steven, as I know, they're still planning on making it. Steven's all trying to tell us that it's bullshit that we're living in the stand. And I'm like... Yeah, no, but then... He, well, because when it first happened, he's like, well, the stand is different. <laughs> but now it's like, you know, he's... he. I saw an article recently that's like, oh, he's sorry that people feel like they're living in one of his novels. <laughs> uh, but in the remake, Alexander Skarsgård is going to be Randall Flagg. James Marsden is going to be... Which one is that? That's the Which one. Card? Yes, that's the one from True Blood and that HBO series where I wonder if he's his dick out. got hit by a tennis racket. He's a little too skinny. He's a little too pretty. Well, Matthew McConaughey is both of those things. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've never read The Dark Tower, so I have. It's the same Randall Flag, and it's described the same. Oh, anything? I don't know about that. That's but... not because he's supposed. Oh, he wears a he wears black. He's the man in black. Yes, but he supposedly, every time he's reborn, uh-huh. he kind of changes. So I know him from the stand, and that's what I'm going to stick to, and yeah. I don't see him as a good Randall flag here. But James Marsden is Stu Redman. Whoopi Goldberg is Mother Abigail. Amber Heard <laughs> is Nadine Cross. Oh, God. You know, oh, oh, she's going to be Nadine? 
Yeah. I was going to laugh. I was just going to say, you know, they just can't seem to get what's-her-face right. Mother Abigail? No. Oh. The main chick that Molly Ringwald plays. Her is Nadine. I don't like that either. I guess I'm not a big Amber Heard fan. So Franny is being played by Odessa Young, who I don't really know. I know she's been in a lot of things that I probably should have seen, but I don't really know her. Okay. But anyway, Jesus, I was going to go into this saying this is a six-hour miniseries without commercials. It's four two-hour-long episodes with commercials. So the whole thing is like six hours and one minute or something like that. And we have a tendency every time we talk about a movie to talk for about 45 minutes to maybe two hours, depending on how involved we get. And that's just one movie. And this is effectively three movies. Yeah, I looked through my my notes. Uh-huh. I have enough notes for three films. Yes. So I was trying to be like, okay, we won't get too hung up on little things, but it's already happened. <laughs> so let's just move straight to, you can watch it for free on YouTube. There are some versions that cut out some songs. We watched one of those versions and just rewatched the song part that was missing because it had a better video quality. Just watch it on fucking YouTube because it's not streaming anywhere. If but- you... Like me, associate Don't Fear the Reaper with this movie, though. Uh-huh. Make sure you watch the beginning elsewhere. Yeah. That was really upsetting. <laughs> I kept singing it. it. I was like, are they going to start? But none of the other songs, and there were licensed songs in there. None of the other songs were taken out in that version. But anyway. It's readily accessible for free on YouTube. Should people watch it, though? If you're not going to read it, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it does kind of stand in pretty well for the book. Like you say, it sticks closely to the storyline. and Yeah, I, I honestly, if you hadn't read the book, it would be all like this would give you the majority of what you're going to get out of it. So I really recommend that you do watch this, especially, you know, obviously if you're a King fan. But I think it's decent enough. I think it's entertaining. Okay, yeah, but it is... It Maybe is a I'm Stephen King it. miniseries. Maybe I'm looking at it because I'm a King fan, but I think it's entertaining. I, I think if it. you have disliked Stephen King miniseries in the past, like The Shining or... Don't you dare say The Langoliers because this is nothing like that. You're right. Langoliers is the worst one. That's an embarrassingly bad one. Scaring the little girl! <laughs> that guy scared me when I was a kid, though. I was going to say Rose Red. Um... <gasps> If you did not like those, you will not like this. Probably not. So be prepared for that. I loved all three of them. But if they're fun for you, <laughs> then yes, absolutely, you should watch this. You could take our advice or leave it, but when we get back, we will talk about 1994's The Stand. From Stephen King, the master of suspense, comes his all-time bestseller. Containment breach! released by a government mistake a frantic military willing to stop at nothing to cover up the terrible truth the so-called super flu does not exist what did you do what did you do do? as the plague sweeps out of control a nation erupts society crumbles the end is here 
Chosen to survive, drawn by dreams of an old woman. You'll be coming along to see me, won't you, Larry? The chosen ones stream to Colorado to find their dreams are real. Help us to be true, dear Lord. Help us to stand. In Las Vegas, an army of darkness assembles, controlled by dreams of their leader, Randall Flagg. Go for it. Giacomo, Gary Sinise, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Ruby D, and Jamie Sheridan. Stephen King's The Stand. Kelsey, part one, the plague. What happens? Well, it's funny. It's such a small thing, but it's funny. The American version opens with the quote, this is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. Not with a bang, but with a whimper. Yes. Which is a famous American quote, right? T.S. Eliot. Yes. Yes. And if you watch the British version, it's almost like, fuck you, T.S. Eliot. <laughs> and they do a quote from the Bible about the four riders of death. So I was reading up on this, and I don't have an answer for that one. But in this one, at one point, towards the end... Lloyd will ask Randall Flagg if he should make crosses, and Flagg says that they should be more inventive. The reason that is, is because in the book, they actually build crosses and they crucify people. Yeah, well, um, they did that in the show, too. No, they put them on horseshoes. They, they had giant horseshoes that they were rigged up to. Oh, yeah, but when they see the one that says drug addict, oh, he's, yeah, yeah, been, yeah, he's yeah. been crucified. Yeah, yeah, No, we're talking like the, the characters as part of the plot in the movie. Oh, you're saying that in the novel they are crucified, the main characters? Yes. Oh, I didn't remember that. Okay. But since this aired on ABC, which is a family channel owned by Disney, they asked them to tone down the Christian imagery, even though this is very much about God, but like not make it controversial with all the imagery and everything. And so my question was, is that why they changed the quote at the beginning of this version? Because if, yeah, if you're on YouTube and you're watching the British aired version, you do not get the T.S. Eliot quote. You get Revelation, the line that Stu has later on in the script about I, I saw its ride, pale horse and its rider was death, you know, that one. So I wonder, is that because the ABC stepped in? I don't know, maybe. Just an open question we don't have an answer to. We open on a government research center where the alarm is going off and somebody over the radio is telling the guy at the gate to close the gate. Now, Chris will make the obviously, yes, a chain link fence isn't going to do anything. The point is that he's supposed to be shutting it down because no one is supposed to leave. And I don't yes. think... The chain fence is supposed to have anything to do with the disease. It's supposed to be about people. I agree. But of course people can jump over it. That's not my concern. Oh, okay. Okay. My concern is that he is told to use the manual override on the gate. 
Instead of doing that, he goes home, he gets his wife, he gets his kid, they grab a bag, they get in the car, and they drive out, and what's happening? It's closing. Who is closing that gate? That's his job. They called him specifically because the gate would not close and he had to do it manually. Maybe he pressed the button and ran no. in hopes of doing no, it. No, absolutely not. Chris says no. Abs <laughs> no, that's not what happens. We don't see it happen. <laughs> anyway, fear will always be our greatest enemy, as FDR once said, <laughs> but he said it better. And... This guy is our downfall. Because essentially, if he hadn't left, they could have bombed it and it would have been gone, right? That's the understanding here? Here, okay, so they don't talk about how they how they could have destroyed it, but the, theoretically, they could have contained it. But here's something you're going to have to come to terms with. How long this disease lasts and how quickly it acts and how deadly it is... The movie is incredibly inconsistent with this, or I should say the miniseries, and I assume the book is as well. Just incredibly inconsistent. Here's the thing. If it is really deadly and it moves really fast, nothing would have happened because there's no way to spread a disease if you die right away. <laughs> you don't interact with anybody and give them anything. Right, but because he left, he spread it. When Don't Fear the Reaper is playing and we're taking a tour, literally everyone in this facility is dead. Sometimes in the middle of a ping pong game with their face I in think, their soup. I like it happens like like this. It's incubation period is zero seconds. It immediately becomes deadly, but it also spreads everywhere really I quickly. I think that. They wanted to make it clear how deadly it was. And yes, they exaggerated it. Well, so the breach just happened. <laughs> That's why he's told at the gate to close the gate. He runs home, nowhere to a place that's been infected, and leaves. But it's too late. He already is infected. So how does this disease travel that fast and that far? Like, there are only so many vectors of communication of disease. And they don't just travel by themselves. Yeah, I, this again, read this a very long time ago, so I don't mm -hmm. necessarily remember, but I believe in you, Stephen. I believe that in the book you explained it. Then, when he drives away, and he ends up infecting somebody else, those people don't even show symptoms until the next day. Yes. Like... It is incredibly inconsistent with its incubation period, how long people live. Well, but well, couldn't you kind of say that about COVID-19? Certain people are... No, we know. They barely have the sniffles and then other people die. Yes, that you can say. But we know it's incubation period. We know how long it takes to start showing symptoms. That's why we have the quarantine time period. If you showed symptoms, you need to remain quarantined for this many days. It's because we know how the disease works. And that's for a disease that we don't really know all that well. For something like this, like... That they created. That they just made up. And yeah, like it... It's something you're just going to have to get over because the story will never be consistent about this. <laughs> Some teeny tiny little thing that means absolutely nothing, but the little girl threw the doll out the window and guess what that made me think of? Wicker Man. <laughs> yeah. Because, mm -hmm. like, why? <laughs> it's apparently do this. It's apparently a thing. I'm, I've never thrown anything out of my window. Like, ever. Okay. 
So he drives across the state. So he comes from California down to Texas. And he stopped several times. He gets all the way to East Texas. Yes, for a bunch of different things. And this is where we will meet one of our main characters, Gary Sinise playing... Stu. Stu Redman, that's right. And I think Gary Sinise does a good job. Sure. He's fine. He's sinise <laughs> I wish I could think of a really good line, and I can't think of one. Well, he's the one that recites the no, Revelations line. No, I'm trying to think from Forrest Gump. I can't think of one. Not your captain, Forrest. What's the other thing he says, though? Um, your brothers. <laughs> no, he says in... Uh, we are not relations, sir. <laughs> I'm thinking of... Um, Apollo 13. Nobody remembers that he was in Apollo 13. Are you kidding me? You know why I remember he was in Apollo 13? It's because he got sick. (laughs) And he wasn't allowed to go up there. And it devastated me watching this movie as a child. It came out in 95. I was like 12. It devastated me. It felt so unfair that the circumstances were such that he didn't get to go on this thing that he was preparing for for so long just because he got the sniffles. But then, vindication, he is the reason they get saved. Vindication! Ken Mattingly is his character's name. Oh, yeah, he didn't even have the measles. That's what they were worried about, that he would have the measles. Turned out he didn't. (laughs) So, they meet... Gary Sinise, because the guy crashes into a gas station. He turns off the pumps. Yes. Turn off the pumps. And it doesn't uh, go up in flames like it does in Christine. Yes. Because well, they don't have an opportunity to do that. There's all kinds of connections going on here. Uh, anyway. Um, so this is a six-hour miniseries. We can't be hung up on this shit. And then when he gets taken out, he talks of a dark man who grinned at him. And that is our first indication of who Randall Flagg is. Although you have already seen him as a crow, but you didn't know it. Basically... He gets them all sick. He dies. The dude from the place dies, but he gives it to all the people in Arnett, Texas. The CDC swarms in and they take all the people that were present when this guy crashed in, which includes Gary Sinise. Yes. One thing I just want to get in here is a cameo. The police officer who, by the way, meets them, meets up with them at the gas station and talks with them as he's driving away, shows symptoms. These people didn't show symptoms until the next day. The cop who meets them, two minutes later showing symptoms. But again, we know that some people can last longer with it. No, it's not how long you survive. It's how long it takes to show symptoms. That's its incubation period. Anyway, that that dude will lie. And he's the reason it gets spread out from there. Partially, yeah. He said, they ask him, have you been there today? And he's like, nope. <laughs> but that police officer is played by Joe Bob Briggs, who late night B-horror movie fans might know as part-time host of Monster Vision and The Last Drive-In with Joe Bob Briggs. He would present these movies like an Elvira type. He's very famous in the television horror community. 
fun. So, so one of our first cameos. So they take them to a center for disease uh, in Vermont. And we will also meet... Ed Harris. Ed Harris. Ed Harris plays General Starkey. He is only in this one episode, and he's uncredited. Yet another cameo. He's uncredited. Yeah, a few more cameos I should probably get in while we're here. The two doctors that work on Stu are Max Wright, who's the dad from ALF. And Sherman Howard, who was Bub, the smart zombie in Day of the Dead. Ah, thank you for that. We get some interesting scenes with Ed Harris, which tell people where we know that guy from, because I know his name. Ed Harris is in everything. He is also in Apollo 13. Oh, that's me. That's me. Yes, he is. So he is an interesting character in the book, and they decided to keep him in because he is such a... Interesting character. He kind of represents the government's refusal to back down from what they've done, but then also the guilt that comes from that. Yeah, it's 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 interesting how refusing to admit that there is a problem and that you might be at fault for it getting worse makes things even worse. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> yes. It's as far as I'll take that. Yes. Uh, and so he starts to feel guilty. He starts to... the The... TV show, for whatever reason, actually does show it for one shot. In the book, it's way bigger bigger of a deal, but he kind of becomes obsessed with staring at this man who died while eating his soup. Yeah. And just the idea that, like, not necessarily him, because it's not like he was there, but, like, his people are responsible for people just trying to just eat their food, and they can't even do that. And he will end up committing suicide and he doesn't even have it he gets clammy he gets you know sweaty all that but that's just because of the stress and he's staying up and he eventually kills himself and he writes a note that says guilty on his chest yes and that's pretty much all we get out of him i just thought he was an interesting guy gary sinise is basically held in a room because they refuse to believe that he can't be sick from it everyone else from the town has died Yes. Now, there are asymptomatic carriers of diseases. This is not an uncommon concept, but this particular disease eradicates virtually everyone. And so they're trying to figure out why he's not affected. And they can't. And one of his doctors, so they all die and eventually the doctors are dying and there's only one left. And essentially he's like, I'm going to fucking shoot you because it's basically it's not fair. So he's there long enough to grow a stubble. Five o'clock shadow or whatever. And the movie was filmed primarily in sequence. Now, the problem is there's so many time jumps and everything that that makes it very, very difficult. That's why oftentimes movies are filmed out of sequence. So they didn't have enough time for a lot of the actors to grow stubble. So, you know, what they did. They would trim their hair with like a little and with like a razor on their face and stick it on with like static electricity and just if you're watching, pay attention specifically to Gary Sinise in these scenes when he's in the CDC in Vermont, and you'll see it. It's real bad. <laughs> <laughs> but so the guy walks in, and like I said, it's not fair, so he's going to shoot him. Gary Sinise is able to knock him out, essentially, and he gets out. Okay? Now, I very specifically remember reading this part. Where he's getting out of the of the uh, the center for disease or whatever, mm-hmm. 
And it felt like it went on and on and on. And I was very glad that they made that sequence very short, yeah. where he only comes in contact with a couple of things. It's kind of scary, and he's out. Well, we primarily get the story of how this spreads throughout the entire world from two different perspectives. I mean, aside from the general who we who we see it ends up uh, committing suicide, we get Stu, who lives it from the medical perspective, where he is quarantined and he's studied, and he gets really stir crazy and frustrated and angry. And then we have the everyday at-home people who do not interact with anything in this way. They are not forced to get into quarantine or anything like that, but it's still having a profound effect on their lives. And that's through primarily Molly Ringwald and her father, who is the doctor what's-his-face from Scrubs. (laughs) Uh, But we do have other characters, including the next one we meet, which is... Larry Underwood. Yes. Larry Underwood would go on to inspire the character of Charlie in Lost, Dominic Monaghan, the guy from from uh, Lord of the Rings, who he's a he's a rock star and then they're in an accident that kills mostly everybody and they're left there in a small group alone to fend for themselves. Apparently, yeah, apparently uh Lindelof commented that Larry Underwood is where he got it from. Interesting. Yeah. Larry Underwood I would say they kind of screwed over his character a little bit in this film. He's kind of a one single-minded dude. Very simple, wouldn't you say? No, I mean, I think they give him an opportunity to be thinking something other than what the herd is thinking. You know, like the crowd all decides that we're going to do this thing. And he's like, don't you guys get that this is fucked up? Can we please just acknowledge that? Like he gets those kind of moments, which adds some more depth to his character. I think that some other characters don't really get. I guess I'm just Larry Underwood was probably the most compelling character from the novel for me because Mm -hmm. he was so torn. Yeah. So torn between what he should do. And in this one, I didn't really get that. It kind of felt like he was always going to do the right thing. Yeah, he was just kind of a fuck up who finally managed to get success in one of the other great injustices, just like Gary Sinise didn't go up in Apollo 13. (sighs) He gets his, his big hit right before the pandemic breaks out. He finally breaks into success with Baby Can You Dig Your Man? Very silly sounding song. God, whenever authors try to write something <laughs> like song lyrics, <laughs> like whenever people put song lyrics in comic books, like, oh, people talk about Alan Moore and Watchmen and how integral the song lyrics are. And it's like, it just feels so damned unnatural. And this is one of those cases where they're trying to make a song that's so popular, everyone knows it. But how could they possibly hope to write a song that's good enough to make He's us believe that? Man. He's a righteous man. He's a righteous man. But it definitely works more for the 70s, which is when King wrote this, than it does for the 90s. Oh, Baby, yeah. can you dig your man? Are you fucking kidding right, me? Right, they didn't change that at all. <laughs> They also end up calling the disease Captain Trips. Yes. Which is a reference to Jerry Garcia from The Grateful Dead, uh. who was actually Captain Trips. It was this sort of pseudo character that he did. He had a an American flag 
top hat and it was this whole thing. But yes, it's really actually a reference to to Jerry Garcia. But again, it's 1994. Yeah. You need to update some shit. <laughs> But so Larry Underwood is coming out to New York to see his mother because he spent all his money in California and now he owes money to people, okay? Why it's important that he's in New York, the only reason is so that he can meet Nadine. Yes. It's the only reason that matters. The next character we meet is Franny. Franny lives at home with her father, which is interesting that they took her mother out of the story. Her mother is just a bitch in the book, so it doesn't really matter. She's already dead by the time yeah. this story begins. Yeah, she's yeah. already dead in this version. <laughs> we get to meet Harold. Harold, who's the nerdy guy who's always had the hots for Franny. Right. The the nerdy one who hates everyone because he's been treated, mistreated his whole life. Yeah. He loves Franny. Although in this version, it's hard to tell why, because in this version, she doesn't, she's not really very nice to him. I mean, I guess, but like in the book, like she's just like, mm-hmm, she's very nice to him and just yeah. kind of like, whatever. But like in this, it's like, oh God, you're so gross. Right, I but it's you. almost like he looks at, not almost, it is. Like, he looks at the fact that there's a pandemic and everyone's dying as like, oh, maybe now I have a chance with Franny. Yes, like, absolutely. I don't give a shit that everyone's dying. I might get laid. Oh, like, absolutely. And, it, and He's so the he's, nice guy syndrome to a T. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Exactly. He cannot fathom why Franny will not have sex with him because from his perspective, I've been nothing mm-hmm. but nice to you. I ha- I helped you with your dad. I comforted you. I never tried anything. And yet you won't sleep with me. And she's like, oh, we'll always be friends, Harold, after her dad dies. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's your boyfriend. Well, not anymore. Do you think that maybe... You know, maybe I could be... Harold, we're always going to be friends. And then she, like, puts on an album and lays her head in his lap. Yeah. And it's like, what are you doing? That's It's fucked. It's really fucked. But still, he is the psychopath. Like, he is yeah. an evil person. But it ain't right what she did. Anyway, she... The only reason that you need to know this... She will get pregnant, and you're gonna be like, "What? Why?" Uh, she had a boyfriend, but he—they had broken up before the story even started, and now he—and then he dies from yes. the illness. So, father doesn't matter. The point is, girl's pregnant, and you have to understand. Wait, 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 wait. The baby's not Stu's. No. Who sworn it was Stu's? Oh. She's already pregnant. Remember, Stu offers her a drink when he first meets her. Uh-huh. She goes, "No, no." I'm okay. And he's like, and then later she says, I didn't think it would be good for the baby. Right. And then he's like, oh my God, like we're going to have a kid. No, they And that's after a time jump. They hadn't slept together But this is one of the problems with the show is that there's a big time jump and all of a sudden Stu and Franny are in a relationship and all of a sudden she tells him she's she's pregnant. 99% sure. We could go back and do the math, but I honestly don't care that much. It's, It's just a problem at face value. Okay. Well, but here's what you should realize. If they both conceived the child, the child would not be... The child would be immune. Potentially. We don't know how the how it works. But the baby's father was not immune, so the baby's yeah. not immune. The next person we will meet is Nick. Nick Andros. 
Nick Andros. He is a great, 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 great character. He's a wonderful person. Just all around, you love this guy. Deaf and mute, played by Rob Lowe. Rob Lowe plays him a little too sappy. Yeah, oh, yeah. A little too, everybody loves me and I love everyone. Uh-huh. I mean, that's exactly what he is. Nick is a perfect human being, but he's not sickeningly he sweet. He is not perfect because the way he treats what's-her-face. What? Like. What woman? The chick who tells. Yeah, no, she's Tom awful. Cullen she's awful. He's trying to give him poison. She's awful, but his response is to pull a gun on her. And then he slaps her. Like, I wouldn't say he's perfect. There's only so many things a deaf mute person uh-huh. can do in that situation. Well, you can threaten to do those things. She wouldn't know. <laughs> She'd be laughing at him trying to do sign language. Anyway. No, not I don't mean like I mean like like with a hand. I don't mean communicating with her. Anyway. So he gets beaten up. Basically for no fucking reason. Because yep. It's th- almost like I couldn't tell if they were going to beat up nobody, like whoever happened to walk by or if they were specifically targeting him. They don't know him, so it can't be a target. They don't know he's deaf. Remember? Yeah, because he's like, you better yell next time I yell at you. Uh-huh. But you'd think that this is supposed to be a mugging. Right. It's not. No, they're just <laughs> randomly beating the shit out of whoever. <laughs> it's pointless. All these people are going to die anyway. Yeah. Anyway, this is what leads to poor Nick Andros being taken to the local jails, the local sheriff, whatever the fuck. And he's in a jail cell. Jailhouse? Is that what we call them? He's at the jail. There's a, diff- a prison is when you've I know, been convicted to spend your time. It's just a jail. So, th- I mean, yeah, basically this is how Nick is going to learn about it. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a good way for him to, because I don't know how much a deaf mute person could understand about what was happening. Right, yeah. So this is how he learns. All the people around him, the kind people, the mean guys who beat him up, they all die around him. Mm-hmm. And he will begin to have dreams. So these are dreams that more than just Nick has. Yes. But he goes to Mother Abigail's farm at Hemingford Home. In Nebraska. Which, do you know which other Stephen King character lives in Hemingford Home? No. That would have been a good trivia question. (laughs) Which one? Ben. As an adult from It. Oh, okay. Okay. As an adult, he lives in Hemingford Home. Got it. But anyway, this set is entirely built on a soundstage. They tried to bring in real corn, but it was completely dead by the time it got there. And so they made fake corn. They they trucked in a lot of dirt and grass and painted a backdrop that made it look like it was sunset. <laughs> yes. You know? Yes. But it's supposed Always to have a perpetually sunset. But it's supposed to have kind of a dreamlike quality, so I guess that's okay. Yes, it's true. It's not real, so it's okay. But when he shows up in the dream, he says because he can talk here, he says, <laughs> I can hear. I can talk. <laughs> I can sing. Yes, every time. That's what it's <laughs> Just like that, that Troy McClure from Planet of the Apes, the musical. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I can hear. I can talk. <gasps> he can talk. 
He can talk, 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 I can sing. And yeah, this is where we're going to meet Mother Abigail, who turns out is not a 108 year old woman, but she was in her 40s and they did a good job. She wasn't in her 40s. She was in her 60s, I want to say. Yeah, she was married to Ozzy Davis. They did a good job. This is Ruby D. yeah. She looked old. Yeah. But obviously... 108-year-old people cannot right. still make bread. Yeah, she looked like an elderly person in makeup. Like, I was not fooled by the fact that she was wearing makeup. That's not what fooled me. But I thought the person under that makeup was older yes. than Ruby D was when she played that role. I yes. would have guessed. Absolutely. Yes. And he comes up to her and he's like, I can talk. And she's like, I know, Nick. Praise God. <laughs> I can hear. I can talk. I know, Nick. Praise God. Is this a dream? Mayhap it ain't. Mayhap it is. Mayhap it is and mayhap it ain't, she will say over and over again. And it takes Nadine to call her on that. Yes, it does. (laughs) (laughs) Or I'm sorry, not 108, 106, based on what I wrote. Anyway. I'm 106 years old and I still make my own bread. You come see me, Nick. You and all your friends. So there are certain people <laughs> that get pulled toward Hemingford home, but some select few get to actually talk to Mother Abigail in their dreams. And I think they all do. No, no. They talk about how the fact that, oh, my God, you've seen her. What's she like? You know, there's still people that are headed in that direction, but that have never seen her before. Okay. So all the people that end up being like the council people are the ones who actually get to talk to her. She tells him, you gotta hurry, his storm is coming. Now, I'm gonna mention this. I know it's tiny, I know it means nothing, but I thought it was funny. You see somebody on the television interviewing people and they interview a guy. The guy's wearing a mask. Mm -hmm. And they ask him. Some people have even taken to wearing protection on the streets. Why are you wearing this mask, sir? I don't know, just feel safer. Okay, thank you. Katie, the folks at the Atlanta Disease Control Center told me that these masks wouldn't stop a flu germ with a hangover. <laughs> it's like, this is so real. <laughs> this is so real right now. Uh-huh. You're hearing conflicting ideas from everybody. A uh-huh. couple of little tiny things I want to mention in here. I do like that at some point somebody asks, and I have no idea who it is, so who is responsible I think it's I think it's Nick. Nick is asking the town doctor, I mm-hmm. think. And he says, "So who is responsible?" And he says, "No one. Everyone. God." Right? Mm-hmm. And it's just like it's so interesting that a story that tells you, "Yes, God exists. There's no question. Mm-hmm. He exists." The question is, who is responsible? Why did God let this happen? But then again, yeah. The whole free will thing, man. There's, yeah. It's very, it's a hard subject. It's a hard subject. Ah. <laughs> um, we also meet the rat man super early, which is interesting because he's barely a character in yes, the novel. Yes, but he's fun because he has that, he has that jazz singer voice. The rat man. And I'm the rat man. The rat man, forgive you this time. We get a warning from Larry's mother. So Larry's mother will die from the illness. Mm -hmm. And she says, the man with no face is coming for you, Larry. Yep. So not only are they having dreams about Mother Abigail, 
people are also having dreams about, and they will call him several things. She's the only one, I think, that calls him the man with no face. Yeah. Uh, but lots of people will call him the walking dude. Yeah. Or some people will simply call him Randall Flagg. Yep. All the same person. Or. The man in black. No, I was going to say that Lloyd calls him RF. <laughs> yes, Lloyd does call him RF. And good segue, because Lloyd is our next character that we meet. Uh-huh. Lloyd is probably my favorite character. Lloyd is great. And I have to say that Miguel Ferrer did incredible in this role. Yes, he did very well. The late, great Miguel Ferrer. He was originally going to be cast as Randall Flagg, or at least he was up for that role. And he brought his buddy, <laughs> Jamie Sheridan, with him. And when he re- he found out he didn't get it, he recommended Jamie Sheridan, his buddy. And they're like, oh, that's great. And so he ended up playing the right-hand man to his in-real-life friend <laughs> that whom he got the role. Cool. Yeah. But yes, he's basically my favorite character because he's the... M- well, okay. It's a toss-up between him and Trash Can Man. Oh, right. I completely forgot. You love Trash Can Man. Uh, Lloyd and Trash Can Man are super sympathetic, sad characters. Yes. Uh, Both of them have had nothing but shit lives. Mm -hmm. And again, who's to blame? Well, Lloyd will say repeatedly that... You know, when asked why he follows Randall Flagg, even though he knows there there's something bad about him, he's like, because he's the only one who's ever told me the truth in my entire life. Yes. Like, and that that's the point is he's he knows what he's doing isn't good. Lloyd knows he's a bad person, but he's resigned himself to that fact. And he tries to be a good, bad person. Exactly. Uh-huh. As fucked up as that sounds, it's true. Trash Can Man can't even go that far. Trash Can Man, I... I uh, it's very soft spot. I, people who are mentally disabled, who are who are manipulated by others, it breaks my heart. Yes, breaks my. And heart. that is Matt Frewer as Trash Can Man. My life for you. My life for you. My life for you. My life for you. Anyway, Lloyd. Let's talk about Lloyd. How do we okay. meet him? What's he doing? He's in prison. No, he's not. He eventually gets to prison. He is on the road. He's on a ra- he's on a natural born killers rampage with a buddy of his. <laughs> they're just carrying guns, talking about murdering people. They're not okay. They're just supposed to be robbers. I know. It's the it, other one that's supposed to be oh, like a trigger happy guy. Yeah, but they they break into a gas station or a convenience store or something like that, and in the process, Miguel Ferrer Lloyd ends up getting shot but not killed, but his buddy does die, and so he ends up getting arrested. Mm-hmm. And when he's getting arrested, what does he see that no one else can see? Oh, he sees Randall Flagg sitting on a telephone pole where there was a crow. A crow. Yes. Yeah. And he's the only or one who can see him there. So, again, everything is basically already plotted out. We just don't know what the end yet is. With the question of who knows what the end is. If everything is plotted out, there's got to be an ending. God knows who's his, who his players are. The devil mm-hmm. knows who his players are. People, right. If all of this is prophecy, why isn't the outcome also prophecy? Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. But that's, you know, that's a question of all prophecies, yes. usually. You never quite know how or why they're going to come all around. 
A couple of quick things that I kind of skipped in my trying to go quickly. Specifically when Harris, Ed Harris, kills himself. Mm -hmm. Before he did, he had a conversation with one of the generals. And I think this is important. He says a lot of different things, a lot of different ways to basically say that things fall apart. He says our goose is cooked. Um, The center does not hold. Things fall apart. I read that in college and it never made sense to me. Now I get it. And talking to the general, the general is kind of like, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Then after Harris has shot himself, the general will find him and will say, you were right. The center doesn't hold. Yeah. So it's, I think it's more of a look at the fact that we deny until we can't. Yeah. And I think that's a really sad fact about humanity. Fella named Yates said that. Mm-hmm. That's what he says in it because it's William but- William Butler Yates who says that. Yes. Although I think he pronounces it Yeats. <laughs> yeah, I might be wrong, but I always heard it as Yates. So did I. But it's it's from a poem called "The Second Coming." It says, "Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world." The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. That's just the first stanza of the poem. The Widening Gyre would end up being a comic book for Batman written by Kevin Smith. Interesting. Mm -hmm. But I think it just shows how people refuse to acknowledge the fact that things do fall apart, you know, until they can't deny it anymore. It's already happened, which again, a lot of things to be said about that in our current state. Anyway, we get to see a lot of different ways that the government kind of takes over. They just start killing people. We see that through Kathy Bates. Kathy Bates gets her cameo. She was in Misery, obviously, just a couple years prior. Fantastic. Uh And she won her Oscar for that. So terrifying, I can barely watch it. (laughs) She is the host, a character who was originally a man in the book, the host of a radio program, and Molly Ringwald and her dad are listening and she gets in her studio gets invaded basically by the military they end up breaking down the doors and killing her live on the air and that's when franny is like this can't be real can it and her dad's like i think so oh my god what's happening daddy what's happening i don't know honey i don't know we also get another cameo throughout this episode of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar as the street prophet. Yeah. You know, later on when people start dying, he'll be the one screaming, bring out your dead, like in Holy Grail. Uh, he does not last very long into episode two. <laughs> <laughs> Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, by the way, also a fantastic writer. He's a really good writer. Really? Uh-huh. I'll just say it. The couple of jump scares that are in this with Randall Flagg couple of them got me. Yeah. And I've seen this before. He pops out at you a couple times. Yes, he does. Last up, Stu gets his dream where he meets Mother Abigail and she tells him to come to Hemingford home. And or does she tell him to go ahead to? She says, if I'm not here, go to Boulder. Yeah. okay. Come here first. But if I'm not here, go to Boulder. And so Bub, the doctor, 
comes in and he's the last one alive and he's super pissed off at the fact that Stu is perfectly fine and he's going to kill him because who are you that you get to survive all this? And in order to get out, Stu throws the television remote at him and Bub acts like he got hit in the face with a fucking brick. <laughs> and then, you know, he they get into a fight and he shoots him and he gets out of the CDC. And that is how part one ends. Moving on to part two, the dreams. Open with Franny's father dying. She's sewing him into a bag and singing Amazing Grace and crying. Why is she sewing him into a bag? Because they don't have... Uh, Caskets? Right, but why does that matter? Because you don't just want a body laying out. Especially if you're going to bury it. It preserves the body and it prevents it from rotting. It's going to rot either way. Eventually, yeah. Uh But it's it's gross just to drop a body in a hole, I think some people feel. I'm sure there's some sort of ceremonial aspect to it, too. You probably anoint the bag in some way. I don't know enough about this. I do know that when Harold helps her and they have that moment where she puts her head in her lap, the record that she plays is Crowded Houses, Don't Dream It's Over. Yes. Hey now, hey now, don't dream it's over. That plays in the YouTube version that we watched, but Don't Fear the Reaper doesn't. Yes. It's so bizarre. Yes. Yeah, no, I wrote down. Because <laughs> uh, um, Harold shows up when she's dragging her father's body down the stairs. Thump, thump, thump. Yes. <laughs> and he shows up and she's like, I'm so hot and tired. Please help me. And I wrote, because I'm also pregnant. <laughs> yeah. I guess we don't know that yet, but still. <laughs> Harold will be like, it's nuts, you know, I hated all those people, but now I want them back. And she's like, it's like a different planet. But she says, we've got to find other people. We can't just sit here and rot. We've got to get out of here and we've got to find where the others are. Because obviously we're not the only people alive. And he says, that's great. I'm going to Stovington, Vermont, which is where... The Center for Disease Control, or whatever, is where they had Stu, which the audience knows is nothing but death, but of course they don't know that. So they are going to ride motorcycles and get up there. And they don't explain this, but the reason you would need motorcycles in this kind of situation is because people were dying in their cars. So there's cars all over the road. Mm-hmm. So the it's best easier way to get around on motorcycles, yeah. Be in a motorcycle. He'll get in these leather fucking chaps and these leather jackets and slicking his hair back. And Harold, you're the worst. (laughs) Like he has no idea what cool is. (laughs) Cut back to Larry Underwood. And who's he going to meet? Larry is going to meet Nadine at a bench in a park Right next to a dead Kareem Abdul-Jabbar laying on the stairs. Laying on the stairs, holding something up with his arm up. It's like a Bible or something like that. Yeah. uh It's his bell, I think. Oh, yeah. uh Rigor mortis? Yeah, is that not the way bodies work? Okay, so rigor mortis (laughs) is a temporary thing where all the muscles and tendons and everything tense up and you become very hard to move. But that goes away with time. It's only like a couple of hours that that lasts. Anyway. So there's no way that le- that arm would be sticking straight up, right? Unless you had perfect timing. Okay. 
He meets Nadine, and she is a woman in her 40s. The way that they try to show you that, because this woman is not. Because she is absolutely in not in her 40s. That's Laura Sangiacomo. They do she that was by. In Just Shoot Me around this time. Graying out her hair. Yes. And she wears a real bad wig. It's real bad. I think. That's her hair. She wears a wig at some point in the movie, but she's always had kind of big lion mane hair. <laughs> okay, well. You're right. It looks not great. <laughs> <laughs> they are going to kind of develop a relationship pretty much because they're the only two people left. But they do genuinely end up liking each other. Yeah. He will get mad at her for still taking drugs which he has like, already kicked by episode two he's already kicked his drug habit but it's like look around you are you trying to hurry up and get with the rest of these people yeah uh-huh. when you're surrounded by nothing by death you'd think you'd want to go sober yeah but they anyway. have an interesting kind of storyline where she refuses to go into the dark tunnel and he throws her drugs away when she tries to take them. She leaves, but then they meet back up again. And she then, gets so scared. Yeah. The The idea is that New York, you're either finding death or you're finding, like, rape gangs. And yes, that is a thing in the book. And unfortunately, it would probably be a real thing if this actually happened. Yep. Yay, life. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so... She's too scared, and she does genuinely care about Larry, and the movie will kind of tell you this. Uh, Larry is basically her only way out. But because Randall Flagg has such a tight hold on her, she can't be with Larry. But Larry is kind of her savior that she kind of denies. But she is one of the folks that instead of getting Mother Abigail visions, she gets... Randall Flag visions, and specifically, she's selected as, like, his bride. Yes, that is why she's been a virgin her entire life. She's always wanted a child. This is all in the novel. In the novel, she's an elementary school teacher. She loves children, but she can't have children because she won't have sex with anyone. Uh, and she doesn't know why. It's uh-huh. just always been a thing. Like, she's uh-huh. always refused to have sex, and that's why. Because she was, again, preordained to be... Randall Flagg's wife, which doesn't make sense. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Interesting how prophecies aren't real. But she desperately does not want to leave New York. Actually, it is him that wants to leave. And why doesn't she want to leave? She is afraid of Randall Flagg. Yes, it's th- it's this weird sort of push and pull. She does continue to save herself for him. Because she's manipulated by him. Right. And she does feel like she's held over by him, but uh-huh. she doesn't know why. But she doesn't, she's not interested in him. She's not evil, but she will get increasingly manipulated by him as the story goes on. Yes. And there's a part of her that knows. Yeah, because she has. She ends up having a conversation with Harold later on about how we're damned. And there is... Okay, so there's a portion of her that knows that she blocks out entirely. She ignores that. Yeah. There's a portion of her that wants Randall Flagg. Yes. And you do see that a couple of times in these dreams. Nadine has a sex dream. Yes. Oh my God, that was on ABC. (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) I mean, he rapes her. 
Oh yeah, no, I have that written down. It's it. I don't think it happens exactly here. Oh yeah, it happens it way happens later. Way later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I have that written down. ABC didn't want the crucifixes, but there's a rape scene in here. I mean, you get one scream and you get one no, shadow she, of a thrust. She <laughs> continues. We hear her echoing screams. Okay, it's it's ridiculously intense uh, for how little they show. <laughs> okay, he tells her. It's going to smell awful here in July. There's Uh so many dead people here. It's New York. It's going to be disgusting. We need to get the fuck out. And he wants her to go with him. So she will. But secretly she knows where she's actually headed. Yeah. Meanwhile, Lloyd is starving to death in prison. Yes. All he has left is a rat. And he's considering eating it because he is starving to death. And that is when Randa Flagg shows up. Yes, this is probably the most we get of Randall Flagg as a person up to this point. He's just this entity in the first episode. Mm-hmm. But now we actually get him having conversations with Lloyd. Lloyd tends to humanize him a little bit. Also, mid-episode correction, it wasn't that Miguel Ferrer got him the job. It's that he was offered the job and he wasn't going to take it. And... Because he's his buddy, Miguel Ferrer talked him into taking the part. So, little mid-episode correction. Because I had it, I, I was going off of memory earlier, and now I actually have it here in my notes. He swears fealty to him, and Randall Flagg lets him out. But Randall Flagg will keep that over his head. Yeah. He doesn't really need to, because Lloyd keeps it over his own head. Yes. But... Anytime Lloyd has any sort of question in him, Randall Flagg will bring that up. Yep. Trash Can Man. You get a little understanding of what happened to Trash Can Man as a child. I mean, you you basically can understand it. He was abused. Kids made fun of him mercilessly. And he obviously has mental problems. And he's a pyromaniac. Yes, he's a pyromaniac. Yeah. Full-fledged. <laughs> One of the things we hear multiple times the bullies mocking him for is burning an elderly woman in their town, burning her pension check. Hey, Trash, what did old lady Semple say when you torched her pension check? Yes. Like they bring it up two or three times in the in the show, and I don't know why they bring it up so often, but it's to know that he's been doing this stuff since he was a kid. Yes, he has been, and... Do you know what other book Trash Can Man shows up in? You've told me, but I do not remember. He also shows up in It. He is in the same... Remember how they keep saying they're going to lock you up in the nut house? And he sings, come on, baby, light my fire, over and over and over again. And it drives what's-his-name insane. Got it, got it. But yeah, he does that in the novel, too. There's certain songs that he will sing over and over again. Baby, come and light my fire is one of them. And he ends up blowing up this oil refinery facility, which they mentioned briefly at one point where the whole city was on fire. And somebody's like, how did this happen? Larry, when he meets the other woman later, she tells him that, yeah, no, they just caught fire. It has a bigger effect in the book, but it so does not matter at all. It's uh-huh. just showing you that he is a pyromaniac. And I don't think they do a good enough job of making you feel sorry for him. Trash can man? I think because he's so desperate. You feel for him. He is incredibly motivated beyond pain because some fucking gross shit happens to Trash Can Man just <laughs> from being exposed to the elements in the sun for so long. Yes. Uh, and all he wants to do is give his life for Randall Flagg 
at the same time, he can't fight against his own urges, and he feels incredibly guilty for that. What little mental capacity he has, I feel like it's almost like Tinkerbell. <laughs> this is going to seem weird, but... Because pixies are only big enough to handle one emotion one at emotion a time. One emotion at a time. Yeah, like, he he's not that refined. You know, he doesn't have a lot of mental capacity. And what he does have is filled with fear and guilt and the desire to set things on fire. Like, that's all he is. And the desire to prove himself. Like, that, like, there's nothing more to Trash Can Man. He's not deep at all. But what is there is kind of, you know, pulls on your heartstrings a little. And the only reason he will go with Randall Flagg is because Randall Flagg encourages his feelings and thoughts and emotions. And no one else in his life has ever done that. Right, he also treats him kindly. Mm-hmm. Randall Flagg's biggest moments of humanity are partially to Lloyd but mostly to Trash Can Man. He'll say at one point that Trash Can Man reminds him a little bit of himself and that he wants him to be shown mercy because Randall Flagg doesn't show fucking anybody mercy, but he outright says that Trash Can Man needs mercy. He'll come back in on his own eventually. When he does, I want him put away, but mercifully. I doubt if you can understand this, but I... Felt a certain kinship for that boy. I don't want him to suffer. Fine. So it's interesting. Well, he does value loyalty. Yeah. Trash Can Man gives loyalty because he can't understand why not to. We'll get a couple of cuts in here of Mother Abigail sitting on her porch (laughs) singing Jesus songs. One of them is a conversation that she has with Randall Flagg. Randall Flagg visits her cornfield, which is why... I think people think he's the one who walks behind the rose. Oh, right. Yeah. I think that's There's why. an implication. I mean, there are people also think that that's Pennywise. And the thing is, is that people really read a lot into connecting characters and storylines between Stephen King's uh, stories to make them a single universe. Number one, because it's human nature. and We like to find patterns. We like to find connections. They fascinate us. Number two, Stephen King does a lot to foster that especially with the Dark Tower series, where he actually puts himself, Stephen King, the writer, (sighs) is in the Dark Tower series. Like, he does that kind of stuff. He he encourages it almost. But, yeah, there's a lot of, is he who walks behind the rose Pennywise? Is he Randall Flagg? Are they the same person? Yeah, so. He also makes Mother Abigail's hands bleed as she's strumming on the guitar, and she freaks out. Yeah, and... She explains that she's not afraid of him, and that's what makes him angry, and that makes him make her uh, bleed. Also, she says rats in the corn, which is supposed to be him. I think in the book it's weasels in the corn. Or something different. And I remember at the time, and still now, why? It's probably easier to get rats. Rats are more associated with disease. This is around the part where they're going to go through the tunnel... Nadine doesn't want to go, but then she does, and she doesn't tell him. And the the really fucking irritating thing about this, Mm -hmm. he calls out several times, who's there? Hello? Anyone? Answer me. If you don't answer me, I'm going to shoot. Okay, I'm going to shoot now. 
You sure you don't want to answer? Who's there? Identify yourself! Come on, identify yourself! You better start talking before I start shooting here! Come on! <laughs> and Nadine says, Jack all! And then he shoots his gun a billion times, and then she goes, Stop shooting, it's me! What? Just what? Right. She just comes out. And these are forced moments of tension and other things when it's like, oh, it's revealed it's actually harmless. But then rewind. Okay, now that you know what it actually is, it doesn't make any sense that it would have played out that way. But they wanted you to be creeped out. Yes. This is when we meet Glenn. Played by Ray Walston. Who we know from... Uh, the Sting, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Oh, yeah. He's the the, the teacher who... Uh, yes, Mr. Hand. Yes, Mr. Yeah. Hand. Okay. He meets Stu, because Stu is just kind of... Traveling alone. Yeah. So Glenn and his dog end up joining Stu. Which is interesting, because in the, in the book, Kojak, he leaves Kojak behind. Uh-huh. And it's funny, because in the movie, he specifically says, I won't leave Kojak. Because in the book, you're wondering, why the fuck didn't he right because kojak will end up going on his own long story and you will read about it uh about a dog going and like facing the world and getting to his people yeah because eventually he will end up helping Stu, which is hilarious because in this version he doesn't he yeah, just he does. sits there with him oh well kind of doesn't he get him something i don't think so it's, no he's the one that catches the rabbit that Stu eats oh is it yeah ah so he does help Stu survive, but he didn't have to go on his own fucking journey to do that. <laughs> Homeward bound, baby. <laughs> this is around the time that we see those dreams between Nadine and Randall. And she'll try. She'll be like, no, you're cold. The other one's warm. I want to be with him. And he says, but you're promised, Nadine. And she's like, who? Who promised? No, he's warm, not you. But I'm the one you belong to, Nadine. You are the promised one. Why me? Who promised? <laughs> Doesn't matter. We don't know, Nadine! <laughs> Nobody knows! Stephen King doesn't fucking know! Right. And she ends up abandoning Larry. But it's okay, because Larry will meet another lady who yes. picked up a feral kid. Yes. <laughs> this is when we meet Tom Cullen. Yes. Bill Fagerbakey, or however it is you pronounce his name. We've mentioned him in the past. He is... Yeah, he pops up in horror movies sometimes. He is Patrick from SpongeBob SquarePants. Uh, we've played a clip of him as Patrick in SpongeBob SquarePants because it makes a reference to this show. Because where he I... says... Yes. I you... said, I wonder if they did that. And Chris is like, no, they didn't. Well... If I actually thought they didn't, would I have been the one to go looking for it and finding it? Which ended up happening. <laughs> anyway, he's the one who's the slow, dim-witted, big country bumpkin. This is one of King's favorite characters. Yes. He, he puts this in a lot of his books. He's an imbecile in a way that doesn't make sense. His tick... Is that he says, 
M-O-O-N spells something. And we know he doesn't actually believe that. So what is that tick? There's no way he thinks that M-O-O-N. My point is that it's a writer's gimmick is what it, it is. It absolutely is. I will give that to you. I have written down every single time he spells a word out of moon, M-O-O-N, including the times when he gets it right. Because it's going to be important. He's going to need to. He's going to need to focus on the moon. It's such a contrived, convoluted reason that he needs to have moon as his catchphrase. Because it's such a small element of everything else that he needs to know why moon is picked. That he does. It is cute. I like it. But when you think about it for more than two seconds, it's kind of dumb. It's been written and portrayed as an honest earnest attempt to spell a word anyway he's been decorating the town that he's been living in with mannequins and other things and you know what if i was the only one alive in my town i had that sort of access to everything and freedom to do whatever i want i'd probably decorate too maybe not with mannequins because that's creepy (laughs) nick andros is coming running by he's looking at all the decorations which means he's not looking in front of him and he almost hits tom cullens with his bike tom says hey Hey, mr watch out And he, like, goes to grab him. (laughs) All I can think is, you know, it'd probably have been faster if you had just gotten out of the way. But he doesn't. He turns. He looks. He sees him. He shouts, hey, mister, watch out. And then he grabs the bike. Could have just stepped out of the way. Took a half a step to your left. (laughs) Anyway. Okay, so... We find out that Tom's parents are dead. It sounds like he had a great upbringing. And here's the big thing. This is probably... The ultimate difference between a character like Tom Cullen and a character like Trash Can Man yes. is your upbringing. Yes. And the fact that Trash Can Man was abused and had horrible, like, everyone hated him in the town, everybody made fun of him and was cruel mm-hmm. to him, whereas Tom grew up with parents who loved him. Yeah. They didn't care that he was disabled. Yeah. He explains that everyone is dead in the town and he wants to go with Nick. Nick explains there's this whole long thing about them getting to the point where finally... Tom understands that he's deaf and dumb. The problem is is that Tom can't fucking read. So they're both fucked right now. (laughs) (laughs) Communicate. But they've decided to take care of each other. Uh, Nick finds a bike that Tom can ride, and they decide to leave together. Yes, and we find out that Tom also has dreams of Mother Abigail, but he also has dreams of the other one. Uh Uh-huh. So they're going to go to Nebraska. So, so far, Tom has spelled... M-O-O-N, that spells hobby. M-O-O-N, that spells hobby. Deaf and dumb. M-O-O-N, that spells deaf and dumb. X. M-O-O-N, that spells X. And Nebraska. M-O-O-N, that spells Nebraska! And when he says deaf and dumb, he says M-O-O-O-N. He says three O's. Are you sure? Yes. Uh-huh. M-O-O-O-N. He just kind of says it repeatedly, so it comes out weird. Who do they meet? Well, it's in another town. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he eats too many apples and his stomach is feeling bad. And so Tom goes into a pharmacy to look for some Pepto-Bismol. And he meets Shawnee Smith playing Julie Lowry, who's kind of a nutso lady wearing... A tutu skirt. It's not really, but it looks like that. It's an 80s flouncy skirt, but it's 94. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. She comes on to Nick in a big way. I mean, it's Rob Lowe. 
Fuck yeah. Yeah. And when he's like, no, 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 no. I, there's a dude out here. And I like that they showed as best they could in such a small section that he was tempted for a moment. Yes. Because in the book, he like goes through this whole thing in his head. Uh, so they just show for just a moment. He's kind of like, eh, no. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so she's up, she gets upset over every little thing. She's upset he rejected him. When she goes outside, she finds out that Tom is disabled and she ridicules him for that. But Nick doesn't know that. When Nick tries to get him to take Pepto-Bismol, she tells Tom without Nick knowing, because again, he's deaf, that he's trying to poison you or whatever. And so Tom refuses to take it. And this is where Nick gets so pissed off that he ends up slapping her and then pulling his gun on her. And then she runs away scream crying like Anna Ferris in Scary Movie, like we talked about in our yes, Scream episode. Absolutely. It's perfect. I'm going to get you. You and your stupid freak friend. I'm going to get both of you guys. And then she'll somehow go and find a gun. And get up into a second story window and fire at them. Nick doesn't even know it's happening. (laughs) So Tom needs to get him away and they ride away. If I ever see you again, I'll kill you. (laughs) Come on, I want to see you run! He spells Tom Cullen, M-O-O-N, in this scene. <laughs> Your name's Tom, right? Tom Cullen, M-O-O-N. That spells Tom Cullen. Yes. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Harold and Franny, who again are on their way to Stovington, Vermont, meet up with Stu and the professor with Kojak. Yeah. Stu tries to explain, you don't want to go to Stovington. I've been there. I'm telling you right now, it's nothing but death. But Harold has this whole macho man, I'm the guy here, and, you know, I'm the one protecting Franny, so fuck you, we're going. Again, he has no concept of what is good and what is cool, and he just has an idea of what he he assumes, you know, men are supposed to be like and tough guys are supposed to be like. Yes. At first, he doesn't even want Stu and Glenn to come with them. But what does Stu take him aside and explicitly tell him? I'm not going to take your woman from you. Or he says something similar to that. Okay, I'm going to talk straight to you now, okay? Between you and me, I do not want to cut in on you here. Hey, that's the last thing in the world that I want. Relax. The last thing in the world. Which is infuriating for so many reasons. First of all, she's not an object. Second of all, she didn't ever say she was your woman. Third uh-huh. of all, she never said she was interested in you either, Stu. Fourthly- No, 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 but Stu doesn't know any of this. He doesn't know them. He just gets that impression from Harold. Yes. And he's trying to assure Harold, Harold, I'm not interested in taking your lady from you. Like, Stu doesn't know any of this stuff. I know. It's just really upsetting. He's going to break that promise. Yes, he is. I also wrote down- Jesus, the king writing. The first thing she says when she gets off her motorcycle is, Jeez, I thought my fanny was going to fall off from sitting for so long. Oh, Harold, I don't think I'm ever going to get these calluses off my fanny. <laughs> I'm yes. just like, 
Is she a hick from Kansas, Stephen? What the fuck Uh just happened? I think sometimes Stephen King thinks everyone was born the same time he was, in the same place he was, and that talks the same way he does. Yes. But she was in her early 20s in the 90s. She would not say Fanny. No. Not at all. I don't care where she lives. She would not say Fanny. Which is hilarious because later, yes, 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 Stephen will make an appearance in this film. And later he will say one of his famous one-liners. That was a real wowzer. But when he says it. It's believable. It sounds normal. Uh Uh-huh. But you were having a bad dream. Must have been a real wowzer by the sound. When other people say it, it doesn't sound normal because guess what, Stephen? Nobody talks like that. (laughs) Just Stephen King. But for whatever reason, when he says it, it's like, oh, that sounded totally Mm -hmm. average and normal and not confusing in any way. Maybe because you're not an early 20s girl in the early 90s. Yeah. Maybe that's why. Anyway. She might have been in her late 20s. I'm trying to remember because she was in 16 Candles in the 80s, Pretty in Pink, Breakfast she's Club. She's supposed to be in college. Yeah. So but, she's, so she's in her early 20s in yeah. the story. Yeah. So they do end up going to Vermont and immediately Harold will come out and vomit. Yeah. And it's like, there you go. See, I was right. Meanwhile, Tom and Nick will run into... Ralph, character. Ralph, Ralph Brentner driving in a truck in the opposite direction. Yeah. So. They're both going to Nebraska. Yes. So one of them's right. I guess since they end up in I, Nebraska. I guess that means Nick is wrong. Yeah. So Tom introduces himself as M-O-O-N spells Tom. I'm Tom Cullen. M-O-O-N. That spells Tom Cullen. Ralph can read, so he reads the notes that that Nick is writing. He tells him, oh, I guess your buddy's name is Nick, because Tom's like, I don't know what his name is. He can't speak. I can't read. And he says, oh, his name is Nick Andros, M-O-O-N. I guess that spells Nick. Your friend's name here is Nick Andros, M-O-O-N. I guess that spells Nick. (laughs) It's really kind of cute. It's very cute. (laughs) And they end up going together to Mother Abigail's place. Yes, and he is a main character. He's going to be yeah. one of the guys that goes to Las um, Vegas later. Las Vegas. Yeah, mm-hmm. But we barely get to know him as a character. Right. He's just instantly good and yes. always perfect. Yes. And honestly, if I'm being totally honest, that's all I remember him from the novel as well. Yeah. But he's a main character. So clearly Steven realized that he didn't do a good job with that character in the book. Okay, so Larry will then meet that woman that Chris mentioned earlier and a feral boy. Now, in the book, I believe there are two women here. I think they've just combined her into one, Mm -hmm. um, which is fine. Who cares? This woman will end up being his new girlfriend. Or as he will call her later, his wife. Yes. Which Nadine will laugh at. Uh-huh. She's the one that tells him about the blown up city. Yes. And they finally get to... Hemingford home. Hemingford home. Or at least Nick and Ralph and Tom and a couple other people and who they pick up along the way. Kill Kreitz. Yes, including <laughs> Cynthia Garris, Mick Garris's wife. Who looks who, very different. <laughs> who was in Critters 2 as Lee, and she was in 
The Shining that Meg Garris directed for television. As, She's as the woman. The woman in the bathtub. Yes, the woman in the bathtub. In, in 217, yeah. She um, looks different in every movie she's yeah. in. <laughs> but they end up making it and everyone's excited and everyone's meeting each other and Mother Abigail is there. And Tom is holding this little girl and the little girl's like, is there a parade or whatever? And Tom's like, oh, there really is a parade. M-O-O-N, that spells parade. Tom, Tommy, come look. What is it, Gina? A parade. Come on up and look. Gosh, it is. M-O-O-N, that spells parade. The little girl looks at him funny when he says that. <laughs> and there's all these cars driving up that, oh, look, everyone's making it to Hemingford home. End of part two. And she recognizes that they know her from their dreams. Yeah. She does say. She knows. Yes. That she's been communicating with them. Yes. Also, Trash Cab Man shows up at Vegas. Right. And he ends up passing out and falling asleep. And they're like, what, what, what's so special about this guy? And Lloyd says, we're supposed to take care of him. Mm-hmm. What are we going to do with him? Let him sleep. Flag wants him. Where is Flag anyway? Flag will be around. He's been waiting for this guy. This guy's something special. Part three, The Betrayal. Another time jump. What happens after this time jump, now that everyone's together? We open on Stu trying to save a man who... Who is this man? Who knows? Oh, well, earlier he showed up with... Kill Kreitz. Kill Kreitz. Uh-huh. But... Cynthia Garris. Yeah. In the book, they have a whole relationship. You know all about them. And then when he dies, it's a big deal. They don't introduce him as a character, so it doesn't really matter. And you see Stu really upset that he can't save him. And you don't understand why that's such a huge deal. I mean, yes. I mean, it sucks that anyone oh, yeah, would die. Died. But yeah, he, but, he refuses to let him go until I think it's Cynthia Garris's character who's like, Stu. Yes. He's gone. And that's exactly how it happens in the book, too. Stu. Stu. What, Dana? What? You don't need to. What do you mean? We're almost there. He's dead, Stu. Please. Cover him up. It's six. The the thing is six hours long. We don't have enough time to establish all of these relationships. Just do a time jump and say that these relationships exist. That's what they're doing here. And this is actually where Stu and Franny start their relationship. I have this. Stu and Fran are an item. I guess you lied to Harold, Stu. Yeah. Harold will walk up and see them having sex in the woods. So I wrote down. So she tells him she's pregnant. I wrote down she preggers. Yes. Then they start having sex. They're so happy. They haven't had sex yet because they're not together yet. And I said they fucking... And then Harold comes walking up, and he's watching him, so I wrote down, he peeping. (laughs) Yeah. And then Harold acts like it's no big deal, even though we know it certainly is. We see that he's cut his own palm, digging his nails into his hand so hard. Yes. Trash can man wakes up in Vegas. Yes. We get the rat man and Lloyd coming up to him, and the rat man introduces himself as... I'm the rat man. Bold, black, beautiful. Yes. (laughs) And 
it's funny because after they talk just a tiny bit to Trash Can Man, he like leaves or something and Ratman goes, dude's crazy. And Lloyd goes, like we're not? Right. Dude's crazy. Like we're not. Trash Can Man here. Okay, so they've apparently like dressed him uh-huh. and cleaned him up because when he first showed up, he was all disgusting from exposure and they've changed him. He's wearing very specifically like a fish and tackle vest. Vest. You know, one of those khaki vests. And I've, I've, I have to believe that they did it because of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. You think? Because that's what he's obsessed with in Honey, uh-huh. I Shrunk the Kids is fishing. And like he, he's always wearing a bait and tackle vest. Uh-huh. And I'm like, there's no way they didn't do that on purpose. <laughs> okay. Sure. I believe it. I buy it. And Randall Flagg will tell him there's work for you in the desert and he will say, I love you. And and Randall Flagg says, I know. I know you do. And I'm going to fulfill all your dreams, Trash. There's work for you in the desert, Trash. I love you. I know. I know you do. But yes, uh, Mother Abigail has moved on to Boulder. Now... I guess that's just so they're closer to Vegas. I guess there's not a lot of explanation as to why. They well, and so Boulder. there's more traveling, so things take more time. And they left a sign that said "head to headed to Boulder" or whatever. So for anybody who comes late, they know where to go from there, including Nadine, who is getting a ride from Stephen King. Yes, Stephen King has apparently picked up Nadine on the way, but. Stu and all of them wind up in Boulder, and the first thing out of Mother Abigail's la- her lips are... You're a child, little girl. Yes. <laughs> How did you know? <laughs> but yeah, so Stephen King is driving Nadine up there, and he says, we said this earlier, you were having a dream, weren't you? Was it about Mother Abigail? And she kind of doesn't say anything. He says, oh, about the other one, the walking dude. Must have been a real wowser from the way you were acting. And again, it sounds normal when he says it. <laughs> that doesn't work for anyone else. But you were having a bad dream. Must have been a real wowser by the sound. And he explains that they will be there in two to three hours. Meanwhile, in Boulder... I guess time has passed, and they are trying to set up the power. Yes. And this upsets the professor. Who's like, oh, look at all this technology and everything that we built up, and then look what happened. And now here we are, trying to get it again, as if technology had anything to do with the outbreak. Well, I mean, you could argue that without technology, we couldn't have made I think it's more plague. that you're, you're, we're futzing with nature, right? Yes. And now here we are futzing with nature again. But like- Electricity is a part of nature. You know what isn't a part of nature? Houses. You know what I mean? Like, at what point do you draw the line between what is natural and what isn't? Well, the reason I wanted to point it out is because I've seen so much shit on Facebook that's like, everybody wants to go back to normal, but clearly normal wasn't working. What? Yeah. uh, How did normal cause this? Explain that to me. At the very least, like I said in Stephen King's, he could argue 
that without the technology, we wouldn't have been able to create the virus. Right. This virus did not well, come from is, man-made but, things. But the point is, is that like shaking hands and going out to big crowded events and stuff like that. But none of that has anything to do with advanced civilization or technology. Right. At all. Yeah. I mean, like literally, you, you want to say no more large gatherings? No one's going to do that. Right, you know what really helps with being able to to gather together without getting in a crowd? Technology. (laughs) How many fucking video conferences have you been on since this started? You wouldn't be able to do any of that, and you would have to meet in person if you didn't have this. Yes. Like, come on. Yes. If anything, you could say that the one thing that we should get rid of is shaking hands. Yeah. (laughs) Which has nothing to do with technology. But an additional point is that there's no internet, at least not widespread I should say it's not a big public utility at this Absolutely point. Absolutely not. Yeah, so you know nobody's talking about losing the internet. So for all you kids out there who grew up with the internet, you might be thinking it's kind of weird that they're living this life this way and nobody's commenting on how we can't watch YouTube anymore. Didn't exist. I wonder what they're going to do with the remake. Well, I'm sure the internet goes down and they're going to make a point of it. Is it just going to be the exact same thing? Oh, the the... I have no idea how Wi-Fi works. If we got, like they did, they got the power thing working. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what it is. The power plant. Uh-huh. Would that get the Wi-Fi working? So Wi-Fi, <laughs> Wi-Fi in your house only requires power. Okay. But, so it is just the power. But it connects you to the internet via whatever service provider you have. So you need those service providers intact. You need the infrastructure in place outside your house. Like the concept of Wi-Fi just requires a device and the power, but you got to connect that Wi-Fi to the internet. And that's what you wouldn't have. So instead of working on power, do you think that's what they'll work on? I'm sure they would include internet in that. Yeah. But apparently, I keep writing her down as Lady Garrus, Cynthia Garrus. (laughs) And I, I was like, her husband? Ben, there's this other guy that she's kind of like into. Right. So again, time passes and suddenly uh-huh. she has a new beau. Yeah. Which doesn't matter to us as an audience because we didn't get to know her husband in the first right. place. But they're both like electrical engineers or something. So yes. together they're working on, they're the ones that get the power back up and running. Yes. And the professor not only has a problem with us trying to get the power on, he's also irritated that Mother Abigail is using God as a way to... I guess keep people in line is kind of his thing, which is really interesting because later he will let go of all of that and will say, no, this is God's plan. Yes. So it's just kind of showing you that intelligent people need proof, right? But the problem is later, yes, he will get his proof. But the thing is, God existed without that proof, right? Well, that's the thing. I don't think he... He never gets his proof. He will, he, spoilers, he will die without any proof. It's because she comes back and, like, has knowledge or something, I think, is why he starts. Mm -hmm. Because later he'll say, God is, is, she's doing this and she's right. Yeah. uh And I think that's supposed to be based on what he saw from her. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what King's point is because, okay, intelligent people, we need proof. Yeah. But you're telling us that God already existed. So why doesn't God get mad at us for not believing in him without proof? Yeah. You know, what we haven't said up to this point is that by this time that they get the power up, Abigail has left. 
Mother Abigail has has disappeared. They don't know that yet. Well, she's nowhere to be found. Right. No, we get a scene where she talks to God. Yeah. And believes that because she's become proud, she... Well, she just, she's listed as one of her sins. It's not the reason. It's her main reason. <laughs> and her belief is that she needs to let go of this pride, go into the wilderness, uh-huh. and... That will do something. It does nothing except for kill her. But I guess it kind of, I guess, proves to everyone that God exists. Because she comes back and she's still alive and she's like, I know now that you guys need to go. She also has an interaction with Nadine, which we briefly mentioned earlier about how when Nadine and King show up at the new place, she's like, who the hell are you? You know, like she gets really, really angry at Nadine just for existing because obviously Nadine's shady. And then when she's like, oh, mayhap it is and mayhap it ain't. And then when she asks her her name, Nadine gives her her fake name and she's like, well, mayhap it is. And Nadine's like, and mayhap it ain't. Yeah. Who's this woman who comes? Go to her. My name is Nadine Cross. Mayhap it is and mayhap it ain't. I'm from New York. Mayhap you are. Mayhap I ain't. Like she's the only one who calls her on that? Yes. And the reason that she doesn't do anything with Nadine is because the feral kid runs up, pushes Nadine out of the way, uh-huh. and Mother Abigail will be like, oh, child, I yeah. love you. And then Nadine will sneak away. Yeah. And that is what really brings it home for Mother Abigail. I can't believe I was so proud I let that one get away. Yeah. When I knew that there was something wrong with her. And Larry tries to go like, hey, Nadine, you're here. What the fuck? What are you doing? What's going on? And, but she just tears her arm away and walks away. So all of these people are kind of just living in the civilization now, but things don't really start kicking up until they get the power back up and running. And they try to start a council of people to like run this collective. Yeah. So they're all in the town hall, I guess. Yeah. They're going to vote on who should be in this council. Mm -hmm. And, they're also very excited because the power is back on at this point, I think. Or it's about to go back no, on. No, no, it is back on at this point, yeah. Yes. So, oh, Stu has an idea before they start. What is his idea? He wants everyone to sing the national anthem. Right. So he does this, and it takes people a little bit of time. It, it takes Franny getting up and starting uh-huh. for people to get up and do it. And what's really funny is they use the same shot, like, twice mm-hmm. in this scene. And I'm like... Seriously? Oh, we get the whole thing. This six-hour, eight-hour thing, or whatever it is. It aired over eight hours. It is a six-hour-long thing. You didn't have enough footage to not have to (laughs) re-show the same shot twice? Really? Anyway, Rob Lowe is also acting his heart out during this. Yeah. He is hold he puts oh, his hand yeah. on Tom's chest Tom's so chest. he can like hear the vi- feel the vibrations. And the look on his face. Oh, I'm so proud. I I know this is about my country and I'm so proud and it's just yeah, anyway. <laughs> Uh, 
they go to, to vote, they list all the names, and these are the people that are running for this council, and they all need to be voted on individually to be approved, but Harold stands up. Harold stands up, and you're all like, oh god, he's like, I would, I have something to say, and Stu's like, alright, the chair recognizes Harold Lauder, and he's like, I don't know what he's gonna say, but we gotta hear him out, and he's like, I propose that we approve all of them together right now. And this is absolutely on purpose to make a big statement, to make himself look good, yeah. et cetera. And the professor notes that. Yeah. He's just like, how ridiculous is that? So they ask the judge, is that something we can do? And the judge, who's Ozzie Davis, is like, yeah, no, yeah, I don't see it. And a, and a voice vote will be fine. And I think it's a great idea. Yeah, uh-huh. Because these are all the people that everyone knows and everyone loves. We don't know why. Right. But they do. Well, they're the, also the ones that were handpicked by Mother Abigail. That's the point. This list exists because Mother Abigail made it. Oh, I didn't realize she made yeah. it. Well, anyway, the point is I hate this because I am steadfastly, firmly against open voting. Yeah. I don't even care. Like, in my classroom, when we're voting on bullshit, I make mm. everyone shut their eyes. Right. Because I I hate the idea of someone feeling that they have to go along with it because right. everyone else wants to. That's not what voting is. Well, I mean, unless it's a representative thing where you're like a, a congressperson or whatever, then your vote should absolutely be public because you're representing other people. They need to know what you're voting on. Yes. But – if it's everyone gets an individual vote, you're right. It should it should be anonymous. Yes. Also, I'd like to point out here that before Harold makes that statement, Stu says, I suggest we do this quickly so we can all get out there and have a beer. Yeah. And do you know who they cut to cheering for that? Is it Franny? Stephen King! Oh, <laughs> oh right. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> you are an alcoholic, Stephen King! <laughs> well, he knows how... These sorts of people behave because he was one of them. <laughs> okay. And then after everybody's happy, because, okay, now we've got everybody on the team, mm -hmm. except who's not happy about that? Oh, Larry. Larry, because he didn't actually want to be on it. He thought that there's no way they're going to pick me. Right. So he didn't mind being on the list. Yeah. But then when they all got put on there, he was like, what the fuck? So the, the council is, it's Stu, it's Fran. It's all the main characters. Right, but no, it also <laughs> includes, like, Cynthia Garris. It does not include the judge, but it does include the professor. You know, so there are some some variations there. But, yeah, Larry is one of the people. The musician guy, the baby can you dig your man guy, is on this list. He's a righteous man. He's a righteous man. <laughs> baby, can you dig your man? He's got a righteous gland. Baby, can you dig your man? So everybody's happy and in runs screaming Larry's wife. Who knows what her name is? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she explains that Mother Abigail is, is gone. Is gone, yeah. And has uh -huh. left a note. After this, they go and they do a barbecue. Fran mentions, oh, yeah, the first thing you do, Stu, as soon as we get the power back on is your barbecue. And he's like, ah, I'm from East Texas. You know, <laughs> that's just like his thing. <laughs> so the council is all meeting at this barbecue and Nick makes this statement. And he's like, OK, there is this other team. We don't know what's going on. We need to start spying. And so they decide that they're going to pick three people 
And and Larry is like totally against this. He's like, what the fuck? Well, first he jokingly is like, well, I guess we better send the judge. And they're like, that sounds like a good idea. And he's like, wait a minute. You're being serious? Yes. And here's my, th- I wrote, because their argument about the judge is that, yeah, he's old. He's unassuming. They'll never assume he's a spy. I wrote, sure, he's old. They might not expect that. But don't you have other old people? I mean, you go to the judge for all your legal inquiries. Don't you want to keep him around as part of your society? But he's very smart. He is. You don't really get to know him in this version. but Well, and he doesn't do fucking anything. Right. And that happens in the book. That's yeah. absolutely what happens in the book. But you do get to know him as a character. Right. So so they decide on three people. They decide on a blonde woman who we don't know. They decide on the judge. And they decide on Tom Cullen. And in order to get Tom Cullen properly trained, apparently at this point, hypnosis is a valid option. <laughs> and the professor hypnotizes the Tom Cullen and Stu gives him his instructions. And this is why, folks, this is why through the whole entire series, Tom has been spelling things M-O-O-N because the instructions that Stu gives him are to come back when the moon is full. M-O-O-N, that spells moon. That's it. M-O-O-N spells moon. And there's no reason why he comes back when the moon is full, except for the sort of like prophecy thing. Well, he also knows how long he's supposed to be there. So they're sending him for a month so that he's yeah. not there for too long or too short of a right. time. And he, yeah, he does spell M-O-O-N spells moon this time. He finally does it at this point. Yeah. And there's a couple of things here. First of all, Tom will say at the very end, oh, did I step up? Did I stand in my head? All of a like sudden before, telling the audience this has happened before. Yes. Because in the book, it, it had already happened. They did it as a joke. He, he did all these funny things. And then when they realized, okay, this works on him, we can use this. Right? And it's kind of silly to even be like, is it like I did it before? Because we didn't see it before. Yeah. Also, when they talk to him, he's much smarter. Because it's now God's Tom. Yeah. So he's able to understand what they're saying. Not when they pull him out, but during it. And that's all that matters because now the subconscious understands yes. it. And his objective is going to be to look for things like weaponry, like missiles and bombs and things like that. Look and look at and look and see the if they're airfield. going to use, yeah, airplanes and shit. Uh-huh. The judge immediately agrees that it's a good idea. They won't expect me. I'll go first thing in the morning and I'll take my truck. Yes. But... All of this happens after the Harold and Nadine, Nadine meet for the first not time. Harold. This is when well, yes, but Nadine also goes to see Larry. Oh right, yeah. And this is her last chance. But she's too late because Larry has already met up with this other chick. Yeah. So Larry refuses, even though he does want Nadine, he refuses to do it because he knows that would not be the right thing to do. He tells his wife to go inside and she kind of watches from outside. Nadine kind of throws herself at him and then his wife is like, oh, God. And she looks away and she doesn't see that he pushes her away. Yeah, she simply assumes he's going to choose Nadine over me. Yeah. She's kind of that way in the book. She's just kind of this kind of, I don't want to say pathetic, but very like wishy-washy kind of. You can push her around. Yeah. So he goes back inside and she's like, so when are you leaving or whatever? And he says, what are you talking about? I chose you. Yeah. And the problem here is, well, it's not really a problem because we all know what happens to Nadine. But 
It's supposed to be Nadine's last chance of being saved. Yes. If she sleeps with him, she then she can won't stay. be a virgin for what's right. his face. And yeah. He won't want her anymore, and everything will be great. But she's too late. Uh huh. But it doesn't fucking matter. Right. So, <laughs> so Randall Flag comes to her and in a vision or whatever, and tells her to meet up with Lloyd. But you need to remain a virgin. But you need to get him to go along with you and follow my plan. We don't know what this plan is yet. So when Lloyd goes home one day after cleaning bodies out of churches and stuff, she's there. She's in his home. Yes, and this is a very weird interaction. They're very weird together, but I kind of love it. Yeah. And she's already in there, and she's just like, you know, I've I've got dinner almost ready. I've got water ready for you to take a bath because... What have you been doing? Uh-huh. And she's definitely coming on strong to him, and he doesn't know what to expect. Well, yeah, and she's treating him like they're already in a relationship and stuff, and he's like, what's going on? But when she tells him to go get washed up, he just goes, and he's like, don't you think about leaving or whatever, right? But he has been drinking this whole time, so his odd response to this kind of makes a little bit of sense. He's, he's been drinking? He's plastered. Yeah, he has a bottle of booze in his hand. Oh. Because he's been cleaning up dead bodies. That's his job in the town right now. Yes, and that makes him, they won't talk about it, but that makes him extremely angry on the inside. He hates that he wasn't picked for the council. Uh Uh-huh. And she explains over dinner that they're going to be friends, but they can't be more than that. They can be good friends. They can do everything but that thing. And it's such a little thing. Yeah. So Um, she's going to suck his dick. He's going to put it in her butt. You know, that kind of stuff. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) And it's really interesting because he is like, well, if you've never done it, how do you know it's such a little thing? And she goes, Harold, shut up and pull tab A. And it's (laughs) it's him because it's the first time he's ever done anything with a girl. uh Shut the fuck up, (laughs) you lucky bastard. (laughs) We find out that because the other... Kilkrite's lady is trying to Cynthia get pregnant. Yes. <laughs> she's trying to get pregnant and she's talking to Molly Ringwald and Molly Ringwald's like, I don't know why you're so excited. Our kids could not be immune to the disease. Right. We don't know. The Which disease exactly- might still be around because the only people left are the ones immune to it. Mm-hmm. We don't know what's going to happen when this baby is born. Well, specifically, again, for Molly, it's really scary because she was already pregnant with somebody who wasn't immune. Yeah. Harold has a dream. Where, where, like, corpses are giving him compliments. And then Randall Well, he's, Flagg, he's walking through this junkyard or whatever, and there's a corpse sitting in the front seat of a car, and it talks to him. Yeah, and it gives him this compliment. But, yeah, Randall Flagg is showing him the way to, to dynamite. dynamite. And then he, like, scares him, and he's like, go ahead, Harold. Do it. Go for it. <laughs> like, it's a weird little scene. <laughs> You're a card, huh? Yeah, a wild card. Do it, Harold. Go for it. So all three of the spies have gone on their mission, but kind of at different times. The blonde lady goes first, then Tom, then the judge. But our first person we see is is Tom. Tom. He's already at the airfield, and he's just their idiot hand who does work for them. And so when the head of security of, of Las Vegas... Says, he was a sheriff in L.A. before all this. Right. And you get to know him way better in the book. He's also a torn character. But 
One thing that they kind of will bring up later is the reason he likes Randall Flagg is because Randall Flagg is the only person he's ever seen that's been able to actually get people to fall in line. Mm -hmm. They don't have any drug addicts. They don't have any alcoholics. No crimes are being committed. Rapes aren't happening. Why? Because Randall Flagg doesn't want it. Why? I don't know. I guess it's because to keep them in line uh to to do the, the stand, like... We don't have time for all this nonsense. Right, all the tomfoolery. No, we need to be prepared. Everyone needs to be working. And he runs a tight ship. Yes. And so they send him, they send Tom to put away the toolkit. And he says, that's Bill's toolkit. (laughs) And he goes and he puts it away, but he sees them loading up a jet with missiles. Careful, trash, that's a bomb. Yeah. Careful, trash, that's a bomb. (laughs) And then the head of security guy comes in and says, what are you doing in here? I told you to put away the toolkit, not go looking around, and you think he's going to get caught. One of the guys putting away the bomb is like, everything okay? And the head of security's like, yeah, everything's fine. They think that he's mentally disabled. There's nothing to be uh scared about. But But they kind of like him in a way. They push him around, but they like him. Yes. At the end of the day, he hops in the truck and he goes driving away. And unfortunately, he and the blonde lady end up seeing each other and locking eyes. Yes. They weren't supposed to know who each other were in case they were ever tortured. Yes. So back in the town, Harold is putting together the bombs and he's listening to Boogie Fever. Yes. And Nadine comes down and she turns it off to talk with him. And he's like, don't screw with my disco, Nadine. (laughs) He's an abusive boyfriend at this point. Yeah, and he's talking about how, like, you know, one wrong move and that pretty hair will go up in flames. I don't know why he talks about her hair. (laughs) But yes, and he calls her a disco queen. Uh Uh-huh. So Nadine goes to plant the bomb where they're going to have another meeting for the council. Yeah. And when she runs back up to see Harold and they're ready to do it, he's like, Nadine? What? We're damned. Yes. I know. Mm Mm-hmm. It's that, like, they know exactly what they're doing, but they just deny, deny, deny Uh until they can't. So then all of a sudden, Mother Abigail. Mother Abigail shows up. Shows up and she's talking to them telepathically. And because she's like passing out, they're like, oh, my God, she's back. And but she's exhausted. She looks all banged up and she she's. Not speaking clearly, but in her mind, she's talking to them. Get out of there. Get out of there. And Nick hears it's in the closet. And so he goes running to the closet while everyone else gets out. And he goes digging through everything in the closet. And he pulls out a shoebox, opens it up. And inside is a a pack of dynamite with a timer or with a a switch and a walkie-talkie, which Harold talks into it. And he says, this is Harold Louder. I do this of my own free will. Which I love in the book. There's one, there's just like one little line and it says his ambition was meaningless. Nick heard nothing. Like I fucking yeah. love that. Like uh-huh. fuck you, Harold. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you have to kind of put that together yourself because the show doesn't really talk about it. But the dynamite was supposed to stay buried in the closet. Who was ever going to hear that? I don't know. Even if Nick wasn't there. But, I mean, Nick doesn't do anything. It just explodes in his hand. He screams and it explodes. I think he runs away with it, doesn't he? 
Well, the whole place still blows up, and Cynthia like Garris. Everybody else got out. Cynthia Garris dies here. Oh, she does. Oh, yeah, okay. and and a, and a bunch of names we don't recognize. Yes, and Nick dies. Yes, <laughs> yeah, Nick. Sad. Nick is dead. Don't worry. We'll see him again. In the book, it was really heartbreaking because you really loved Nick yeah. at that point. And so we hear Mother Abigail say that it's time to make a stand. He says the title, you win a prize. Yes. She says you need to give your will to the will of God. Mm-hmm. Who doesn't like this plan? Franny. Oh, Franny yeah. Franny does not she like She has this a baby plan. on the way. And so this is part four. The plan is to send specific people, the men, by the way, none of the women, mm-hmm. uh, to Vegas to make a stand. And it is the professor. It's Larry. It's Stu. And it's Ralph, the guy who drove Tom and Nick and who's just a perfect guy. He has no character development the whole time. Yes. They're all going to go west to Vegas and make a stand. They don't know what they're going to do when they get there. They just know they're to go. They also know that one of them will fall on the way there. Yes. And so won't make it to Vegas. And she explains, I don't know which one of you it'll be. I have no idea if you'll win or you'll lose, but I know that God wants this. Yeah. And Fran's like, um, <laughs> Stu can't go. I'm having a baby. <laughs> and he's like, no, I, I think we have to do this. And, and this is where Mother Abigail dies. Yeah, and she's just like, you need to you need to let go of everything because you don't matter anymore. This is what God wants. Yeah, and so they head off on their mission. Meanwhile, Harold and Nadine are already driving away. Harold on his motorcycle and Nadine on her, like, Vespa scooter. <laughs> and she has, like... Nadine constantly has these nice outfits. Where right? I'm like, where did you get those from? Right? I have... I was making fun of how she has just, like, the perfect scooter riding outfit with a scarf and everything. Like, she just has that. Later on, she changes the next day into another perfect scooter outfit. No bags or anything. Where she's getting this clothes, where she's getting these clothes, it doesn't make any sense. But anyway, now that Harold has fulfilled his purpose, he's not useful to Randall Flagg anymore and is almost kind of just a threat. Yeah. Because he's with Nadine. Mm -hmm. And so as he rounds a corner on this country mountain road, all of a sudden Randall Flagg is there, causes Harold to swerve and fly over the railing. And you just see this body flying and kicking. And it's a real stuntman flying through the air. But they go in like real slow-mo and his face is facing the camera. And it's so obviously not Harold. (laughs) It's just kind of funny. But yeah, and he crashes and he breaks his legs, his ribs. Like, he's totally fucked up. And he's like, Nadine, I need your help. My ribs are broken. And Nadine's like, I'm out of here. Yeah, fuck you. (laughs) They don't do a good enough job, I don't think, of showing just how disgusted Nadine is with him. Yeah. Because she is disgusted with him in the book. Well, I think partially, partially that's also because she's disgusted with herself. Mm. And so they did the same thing. So she gets to project her feelings towards herself onto somebody else very, very cleanly and neatly. Meanwhile, let's just finish up Harold's story here. Meanwhile, Stu can sense that something's happened to Harold and they're coming up on him soon. And on their way, Harold writes a note on a pad of paper that he had with him and 
tucks it in his jacket and it says what? I'm sorry I was misled. Yes. No, you fucking weren't. No. You just went with the wrong side. You went to the dark side. Fuck off. And then he pulls out a gun and he kills himself. And Stu gets that as well. He senses there's a disturbance in the force. (laughs) So that's the end of Harold's storyline. He served his purpose. On their way in, they see a man who has been crucified for being a drug addict. And that is how they've gotten everyone to stop taking drugs. I also have written down... Why is Sam Raimi in this? Okay. <laughs> well, we know why Sam Raimi is in this. Yes. Because but we talked about this before. Nowhere. He also makes a cameo in the Shining miniseries. It's because Stephen King was instrumental in getting exposure for Evil Dead. And they've become great friends since then. But Sam Raimi would not be who he is today if it wasn't for Stephen King. So, or at least he considers that the case so he is in like a diner full of dead people playing cards with another guy just waiting on someone to show up but we don't know who so tom cullen has been at this place for weeks and the judge is just now showing up but the judge had a truck and he was leaving the next day do we know why it's taking him forever to get there i think he says it in the film that he's he'll go a different way and then he'll oh, come back okay. in the book it's a whole thing he wants he doesn't want to show up when the others show up right so he goes off on his own little thing and then he comes in that this makes way. sense yes and who they're supposed to be waiting for is the judge yeah. as he comes roaring through this town they're like oh shit it's him and they and they go chasing after him but we know they have special instructions which is to not Mark him up. Like, if you shoot him, shoot him in the stomach. Keep him clean. We don't know why yet. But shit goes horribly wrong here. (laughs) They finally stop him. The judge gets his gun. And Sam Raimi's friend gets out. And he's like, hey, no, don't worry. I ain't got no gun. It's okay. But then Sam Raimi flashes his Uzi. And the judge (laughs) is like, oh, shit. (laughs) Ozzie Davis pulls out his gun. And... And... He gets shot, but Sam Raimi just a row of bullets up his buddy because his buddy's standing in the way. And he gets shot by Ozzie Davis, but not bad. He's fine. He gets shot at by Ozzie Davis. And now Ozzie Davis is dead and all tore up. And Randall Flagg in his Canadian tuxedo shows up and is like, what the fuck did you do? (laughs) What did I tell you? I told you not to mark him up. And then he'd get so angry. And this is going to be a trend for Randall Flagg as things start to go sideways for him is he gets violently aggressive and he just beats the shit out of Sam Raimi. Kills him. Yeah. He calls into Lloyd, who's having sex with the blonde. Yes. He's in a relationship with the blonde and she's like, he's like. Oh, I thought you would be asleep. And he's like, I need some sleeping pills. And he's like, I got you. Just call me the pharmacist or whatever, or whatever he says. Yeah. Hey. I thought you were going to sleep. I might need a sleeping pill. Call me the doctor. It's just a sexual relationship. That's all it is. And he genuinely likes her. But she is also, like Nadine, completely disgusted with him. Yeah. So Randall Flagg calls Lloyd over the radio and is like, well, found the judge and he's useless now. We have no idea what they were going to use him for. And he knows that there are three of them. He can't 
see one of them, doesn't know who it is. And so Lloyd's like, but do you know the other remaining one? And he's like, oh, I've always known. And he does this thing where he waves his hand over the dash display inside the truck. And we see an image of the blonde. Like, why does he do that? To let the audience know. I know. But like, he's like, oh, I've always known. And then he turns to the dash. He waves. We see the woman. And it's like, you've known who she is. Like, why? It doesn't make any sense for the character to behave this way. It's the woman that Lloyd's been sleeping with. And so cut to Randall Flagg is back. In the book, I think it's pretty much he knew he wanted Lloyd to choose him over her. Yeah. and he, that's and, what it was. And that's what happens. Yeah. So Lloyd gathers together all his men, including Ratman and, and the, chick. the chick from earlier. Who was all mean to Nick and yeah. Tom. And make her get dressed and you're talking to flag or whatever. And as she's getting dressed, we see she has a retractable blade on her wrist that she loads up and gets ready and goes and visits flag. So what happens here when they're talking to each other? A weird thing. And this does happen in the book and I'd never understood it. She walks in and all of the furniture is gone. Yeah. And he says, liars sit in chairs. Yeah. (laughs) What? (laughs) Okay. Truth tellers. Sit on the floor. Yeah, lounge or something. I forget what he says, yeah. Liars sit in chairs, you know? Truth tellers just sort of hunker down. She tries to kill him. She's unsuccessful. He knew all She stabs him once, and it's like, keep stabbing. Well, turned into something else. Eventually, she's like, and he's like, oh, and she's like, take that, motherfucker. And then he starts laughing, and then she has a banana there instead. But like... She obviously stabbed him once. Like, just keep going. You shank him. Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> you don't stop. And he is saying, when I try to find this third person, all he can see is the moon. Get it? Yes. And he turns into this doofy looking demon face that we see for the first time. Yes. It's pretty bad. It scared me when I was a kid. <laughs> when I was a kid and I saw this, that face scared He's me. He's got these horns that kind of droop down and they're not intimidating at all. Like, this could have been much better. It was a weird choice. Yeah. He basically tells her, I'm going to torture you until you tell me, and then I'm going to keep torturing you. Like, I'm not going to kill you. And she's just like, okay. So she kills herself. Yeah, she throws herself on some broken glass from this shower. that Because they're in the bathroom. I'll never it's this really fancy why bathroom. people show their cards. Right. I'll never understand that. You tell me you're going to torture me. And then after you've tortured me and got my information, you're still not going to kill me? Well, then I'm going to kill myself now. So she's thrown herself on the glass. He picks up her body. And he's like, no, because he wanted to interrogate her. And he just is holding her. her. And he just kind of like shakes her. <laughs> like, like, wake up. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't. And then he tosses her. Yeah, mm. it's just kind of funny. So what does he do next? Nadine will run out of gas here and will start to walk. But before we see what happens with her, we get a scene of... Trash Can Man. Uh-huh. Trash Can Man is being swarmed at this moment by his memories of childhood, which have caused him, as we know, when that happens, he blows things up. Yeah. He blows up their their hangar with all their the bombs hangar. and the planes in it. Yes. Yes. And as he's doing it, he's apologizing because he can't help himself. I couldn't help it! I couldn't help it! I'm so sorry! He 
he says, I'm sorry. <laughs> As he drives away on his scooter desert. into the desert. Yeah. Okay. Now we see what happens with Nadine. Nadine has just been wandering in the desert at this point, And she comes across Randall Flagg. This is what her dream has always been of. Finding him in the desert. Mm-hmm. And at first she's a little excited. At first it's like, oh, thank God. I'm just, I'm finally here. Whatever is going to happen is going to finally happen. Only then he does what? He shows her his face. His true face. And she starts to scream. And then we get the rape scene, which when you think about the fact that this was on ABC. I wrote that. Pretty big deal. I said, I mean, do we expect better than rape from Randall Flagg? No. But still on television, it's kind of intense. You don't, like we said earlier, you don't see much, but like... You hear her screaming, and it's like, it's weird that this was on television. Yeah. And then he's all happy because he's just impregnated this woman. Oh, yeah. And so he's driving back. Her hair is now all white. Yes. And she's not talking. Does and he's, that really happen, by the way? Can your hair really go white? It won't here? turn white like that. No. No. Your pigment won't leave hair that's already grown. It comes out of your head with lost pigment. And so hairs so will whole- be... Being scared to your hair turning white is bullshit. Oh, it can eventually turn white, but it won't turn white instantly or anything. Not like a cartoon. Or like an evil dead tooth. Right, where it just turns into it, yeah. <laughs> anyway, he's singing Can You Dig Your Man. Baby, can you dig your man? He's a righteous man. Tell me, baby, can you dig your man? It's the apocalypse, and the only one song they have is a one-hit wonder. It really is the end of the world. It is the end of the world. (laughs) We get a couple of different things here. We get shots of Stu and all of them walking. And this is when the professor will say she wanted us to be empty so that God could fill us up with whatever it is that we need. Mm -hmm. And he's now decided that God does exist. Randall Flagg finds out what Trash Can Man did. And this is when he will say, be merciful to him when you find him. Yes. He'll come back in on his own eventually. When he does, I want him put away. But mercifully. I do not want him to suffer. Meanwhile, we didn't say this. The chick who earlier was mean to Nick and Tom. And who now works with Randall. Has seen Tom Cullen. Yes. Tom Cullen, I think, was leaving when she saw him. Yes. But still, she did see him. Oh, he saw the the full moon. M-O-O-N. That spells moon. He did it again. (laughs) And she's very excited to tell Randall, I know who the third person is. But she's too afraid to tell him, so she wants Lloyd to tell him. Well, Randall Flagg is far too excited about his wife being here to listen to anything they have to say. And Lloyd tries to tell him. He tells Lloyd, shut the fuck Tomorrow, up, basically. Tomorrow, or in the afternoon, one o'clock should be fine. And so Lloyd comes up at one o'clock. And the chick, though, before he gets in the uh-huh. elevator, she tries to tell him, because she's uh-huh. like, Lloyd, God damn it! And she tries to tell him, and he hits her. He calls her rude. Yes, and hits her for being rude. Such a rude And so when Lloyd does eventually get the opportunity to tell him, Randall's super pissed because why didn't you tell me earlier or whatever? He's like making them drinks and then he throws them and he trashes the whole place and he's really angry. And he's like, I tried to tell you earlier. You wouldn't let me. Mm -hmm. You shut me up. And so Randall Flagg, he calms down after he destroys the place and he's like, how did you like your drink? 
uh, Lloyd, and Lloyd's like, I never got to drink it, Randall. It's on the, it's on the yeah. wall. And he's like, you've got balls of steel for talking to me like that, but that's why I like you. Uh-huh. But we all, we've skipped a couple of things here. When they get in the elevator, Nadine... Oh, she has this really dramatic moment. Yes, well, Nadine's so fucked up. Like, he keeps talking she's in about a trance. her. And he's touching her, and he's being very gross with her, and she's just, like, very obviously in shell shock. And then when she gets into the elevator and the doors are closing she leans forward and she goes we are dead and this is hell <laughs> yeah but she says it much more dramatically than that just as the doors close this is hell <laughs> we are dead and this is hell and we are in hell <laughs> while he's having this interaction with lloyd We just kind of see Nadine walking in the background, and I love that they did it that way. Uh Because the next thing he sees is she's over by the ledge. Well, first he tells, I want to say this, he tells Lloyd, get a search party together, get these guys, have them go search for this kid. Yes. And he sees her there, and he's like, what are you doing? And she's talking to him about, like, you know, your seed is cold. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is the biggest burn ever. (laughs) Yes. And she's saying, you know, everything you've made here is falling apart. And she's now up on top of the ledge. And he's like, baby, if you come down, I'll give you anything you want. Anything in the world. And she's like, can you give me Larry? No, you can't. And then she just jumps to her death. Yeah. You know what, though? Randall never puts together the Larry thing. I was like, why would you tell him who you like? He's going to do the worst things to him. But Randall never puts that together. Right. Well, this maybe in the book he does. I don't know. This is a very different. I mean, not very, but it's different. A different death here in the book. She taunts him, mm-hmm. kind of like she does here, but far worse. Anything she can think of to be mean to him, she will say. You got a weird dick. <laughs> yes. No. Um, but it it angers him because she's seen how angry he gets yeah. and how when he gets angry, he's destructive and violent. Uh-huh. And so she causes him to be so mad that he kills her. He throws her off the window himself. Yeah. And then afterwards he realized what she did. And it's kind of a great moment. Cause she like tricks him into doing it. Yeah. Whereas I here, think though the commit, I mean, it's, it's a fun sort of twist in that way, but this says something about Nadine and the way she feels and how intensely she feels about this, that she needs to save the world is what she's doing in this one act. And she's not leaving it up to him to mess up his own plans like he's Thanos or something. She just jumps off. And the next shot we get after they move the body and they're just hosing down the blood is like super graphic. (laughs) One of the guys who works for Lloyd ends up telling him outside that they're going to get a group together and they're going to leave. Things are falling apart. But Lloyd says he's going to stay because he's loyal to Randall Flagg, the only person who ever told them the truth in his entire miserable life. Yeah, because a lot of people are leaving. They're going to South America. Uh-huh. Me and some of the others are cutting loose. Cut loose where? South America. Near Rio. Jenny's been there and she says it's nice. Fresh water, fresh fruit, ocean air, and just plain folks. Once you want to forget they ever hooked up with uh, his infernal majesty. So what do you say? Me? I'm sticking. Why? It's going bad here, can't you feel it? Maybe. 
But he saved me from starving to death. And that's not even the main thing. I mean, he changed me, you know? And he trusted me. So yeah, I'm sticking. Man, you're nuts. You're probably right. Because, again, what is happening around the rest of the world? Right, exactly. Nobody knows. No indication of what's happening in the rest of the world. <laughs> the rest of the world does not exist. No, because to America, America is the world. <laughs> but Tom on his way back, he runs into the search party who's looking for him. In that search party, John Landis. There's another cameo. Yes. Director of American Werewolf in London and Thriller and several other things, including Twilight Zone, the movie, which we won't go there. <laughs> Meanwhile, Tom Cullen is on his way home and we get to see some of the people that are looking for him. We also get the group headed west again and they get across what's a washout. So heavy flooding or whatever has washed out this ravine where the road was that they were following. And it's a steep drop down and a steep climb up. There's this really silly scene where they're all like, <laughs> where they run down the hill. I made it down. <laughs> it's really bizarre. And they're acting like children, but whatever. They need to find their joy where they can find it. <laughs> and they're just so proud of that. And then they on the way back up. up Yes, so Stu's the first one up. He gets up to the top, but not quite all the way to the top before he stands there and says, ha, look, I told you it wasn't that hard. And then he falls <laughs> like a stupid, dumb idiot. Yes. And, and he breaks his leg. And yeah. it's one of those compound <laughs> fractures where the bone's sticking out. Hate bones. And it's hate really bones. bad. And so now they've discovered who it is among them that would fall. Yes. And they're really struggling with this because as far as they're concerned, leaving him behind, he is going to die. Yes, they think he's going to die. And the professor goes on a walk to see what supplies they can find. He gives them some of his arthritis medication for the pain and a Coke in some product placement we have here. Yeah. He said they had a beer, but I didn't think you should take it. Not like, on these pills I'm about to give you. But he does say you take like four and that's lethal yeah he basically lets him know if you need to kill yourself if you're, you're going to starve it. to death if you're going to die from dehydration just do this yeah but the professor's dog kojak refuses to go with them insists on staying with stew which we'll see is a good thing because the dog ends up like catching a rabbit that they end up cooking and so the dog saves stew's life and keeps him alive long enough for the next thing to happen yes because it ends up being spoilers, the reason he falls is so that he can be the only one who survives. Yes, everyone else dies. So why did he go in the first place? <laughs> God works in mysterious well, I think ways. Tom gets him back. Yeah. But I think he gets Tom back too, in a way, kind right? Of. Kind of. So, so anyway. I was just going to say that Larry has a lot of problems with leaving him. Yeah. And it's actually the professor that says it's God's plan. If God wants him to live, he'll live. Uh -huh. Which, again, is interesting because earlier he had said that God doesn't exist, basically. Right. It's a real defeatist outlook on life. That but, way that you're just like, oh, whatever happens, happens. It's God's will. If God wants to save me, he will. You know that story about how the flood and you're stuck on a roof and it's like when the dude finally dies and... He's like, why didn't you save me? He's like, I sent you a boat and a helicopter and like all this shit. And you didn't take it because he was so insistent that God will save me. That's one of the great religious parables that I actually really like. Stu will say to Larry, gotta go to, you gotta find Flag and you gotta find him now. 
<laughs> just like in Rockadoodle. Rockadoodle. You got a crow, you got a crow now. <laughs> this is our second Rockadoodle reference in I think two weeks. Yes. When we came on this trip, we put our lives in the hands of Mother Abigail's God. Now that hasn't changed. If he wants me to eat, he'll send food. If he wants me to drink, he'll send rain. It's his business. Yours is to go against flag. Now you got to do that. You got to go without me. There's no time to explain. Santa Claire, you got a crow and you got a crow now. They continue on and then they get captured by the head of security and his men. And they're all arrogant pricks about it, too, the way sometimes religious people can be. You know, where they're like, ah, we have God on our side and you're going to hell and ha ha ha. And it's like they're kind of insufferable about it. Yes, it is very sappy when they get taken in. They're holding hands. Yes. They tell them you've embraced a monster from hell. (laughs) They find out that the guy was like a sheriff in L.A. And they're like, well, here's Larry King humanitarian award. Yeah. Make a Larry King reference in 1994. Yes. And they take them into jail. Yep. Where Randall talks to the professor. Just like when the devil tempted Jesus in the desert. Mm-hmm. He's now tempting him. He's saying, I can let you go. arthritis go uh-huh. away. I'll let you go. All you have to do is kneel before me. Yeah. And he laughs at him because he's like, are you fucking for real? Like, this is it? Uh Uh-huh. I thought you were going to be this big, scary dragon Uh monster thing. Back east, we all make this big deal about you. And you're just a dude in denim. (laughs) And then they shoot him. Yep. Because that makes Randall mad. Well, Randall makes Lloyd shoot him. And Lloyd is hesitant, but he still goes through with it. Yes. And what does he say to him before Lloyd shoots him? It's really condescending, but it's true. He told me more truth than anyone else in my whole lousy life. It's all right, Mr. Henry. You don't know any better. No, to Lloyd, yeah, uh uh-huh. They're stringing up the two remaining guys, Ralph and Larry, on what would have been crucifixes, but are now giant horseshoes because Vegas, baby. Vegas, baby. And there's a huge crowd to see this execution. And all of a sudden, he has like a symbol and colors that represent him. It's red and black, and it's like this horned figure symbol on all these flags. Like it's Nazi Germany kind of thing, you know, that they're going for. But they invert the colors. The field is black and the symbol is red as opposed to the other way around with the Nazis. But it's obvious they're trying to evoke that. But, like, where did all this stuff come from? Since when did he have colors? Since when did he have a symbol? Just right now at the end of the series, I guess. I don't know. And he's going to hurt them all. Yes, and he's making this big, long speech You find out that they're shooting deserters. Anyone who leaves is being killed. So that dude who said that he was going to get out, he's still there. Yes. And I think he was going to try to undermine things here. And he gets up to talk and Flag does this thing where he like shoots energy at him. And it's this bright blue ball that hits him and it electrocutes him and his body is turning blue and he's just on the ground getting electrocuted for the rest of the segment. But he does say, come on, people, this is America. We don't do this here. Yeah. And when Flag kills him, 
Larry's like, what is wrong with you people? Anyone who disagrees with him, he just kills and you're okay with that? Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's absolutely insane yeah. that these people don't see the problem with the fact that our leader is killing people who disagree with him, etc. Oh, it doesn't matter because what happens next? Trash can man shows up. And trying to get forgiveness <laughs> for destroying their arsenal. <laughs> he comes in on his ATV, pulling behind him. A nuclear bomb missile. The A-bomb. The A-bomb. Yes, I guess it is an A-bomb. And what's her face? The chick in the 80s skirt who's insane points and goes, he's got a bomb! And then she runs down the stairs, trips over the guy who's getting electrocuted, and gets electrocuted herself. Now she's dead. Oh, I thought that Red Flag did No, no, no. She just tripped over the dude's body. Okay. (laughs) This bright blue electrified body. He's got a bomb! Run, run, run. (laughs) Trip. Dead. It's so good. (laughs) So people are starting to run. And Randall Flag's like, come back, you cowards. And, and shoot the crazy <laughs> bastard talking about Trash Can Man. And so Lloyd comes up to Trash Can Man. Trash Can Man pulls off his goggles and all of his melted skin from his exposure. It just comes off with the goggles. It is so gross and incredible. It is the best effect in the entire movie. Lloyd, is that you? My eyes were all funny. <laughs> That's what he says. And so... Oh, God, here it comes, Kelsey. Somebody's on the floor. They've been electrocuted, and they have this blue glow about them that came from Randall Flagg. That blueness comes out of this person's body on the ground and turns into what? God's hand. The hand of God, who is apparently made up of evil energy that comes from Randall Flagg. He's using that devil magic and turning it into white magic i guess <laughs> and white magic in the sense of you know like old school kira kiraga final light. fantasy shit that way and it reaches down and it grabs the bomb and it sets it off and it explodes it and all of vegas goes up in a mushroom cloud yes including the two guys who are supposed to be but they're totally fine with it oh yeah mother abigail says to them you done good boys now come on home now remember They've done nothing. (laughs) God could have made that explode at any time. Yes. Trash Can Man did literally everything. Yes. He took out their arsenal. He brought the A-bomb to them. And then God set it off. These folks being there was unnecessary. Yes. Completely unnecessary. And it didn't contribute to the downfall of Randall Flagg in any way whatsoever. Unless. Unless God wouldn't have done it unless they made this stand. Which is... Sacrifice, man. God's all about that in the First Testament. My point is, is that he's willing to intervene. Obviously, he's so free will is not a thing as far as he's concerned because he's willing to intervene in this scenario. So if he's willing to intervene, why is there any sort of sacrifice required? The free will is required by the humans. If free will was required, God wouldn't have intervened. Because if free will is required, shit would have gone down the way that humans would have had it go down. But no, God hands shows up. He gets in the middle of shit. He takes away everyone's free will in this moment. So why would free will be a requirement for this moment to happen? Because they had to come. It's stupid. It's so dumb. It's stupid. It's because they needed to make a stand. Chris and he needed not- he needed the he needed the story 
to reference the title. Chris was not brought up in a religious household like I was. This stuff just makes sense to me because I've been told it my whole life. Exactly. <laughs> it's because it's just it's hammered into you over and over and over again until <laughs> you stop questioning it. It just makes sense inherently, <laughs> except it doesn't. Anyway. Story's not over. The story isn't over because Tom finds Stu. <laughs> And they go back, but Stu is sick. He's dying because he's got an infection. And they go and stay in a hotel. Yes. Which is not, unfortunately, the Overlook. The Overlook, It's not the Overlook, but it sure looks like the one that, the the Stanley. It sure looks like the Stanley. Maybe it is. Where they filmed it. So, again, Tom's only purpose, his intel gathering served zero purpose because everyone in Vegas is dead now. Before he ever got to use it, his only reason is to rescue Stu. Yes. Who didn't even have to go in the first place. <laughs> and how does he save him? Because there's no way Tom would have known how to save him. Who comes and tells him Nick, what to do? Nick comes and talks to Tom in I his can dream. Talk. <laughs> and, <laughs> and tells him how to take care of Stu. So that's why Nick had to die. <laughs> Also, Stu could live. Friday's going to have that baby. Yeah. Baby needs a daddy. <laughs> so he ends up feeling better, but Tom is like super depressed. <laughs> Why is he depressed again? I don't remember. Oh, when he's trying to get Stu to eat, he's trying to give him a sandwich and he's like, M-O-O-N, that spells peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> okay, so they end up headed back. They find a truck there. and No, they find a truck and a snowcat. So they're smart enough to think ahead, and when the snow gets too bad for them, when they're headed back to Boulder, they get in the snowcat, and they drive the snowcat instead, and they come up on two guys who are sentries, and one of them is Stephen King again, and the other guy is Mike Lookinland, and Stu, when they see them, and he hugs them and everything, how you doing, Bobby? Mike Lookinland was Bobby Brady on the Brady Bunch. So they called him Bobby in this. (laughs) That's another cameo in this movie. That's so funny. But yeah, they show up and they're like, oh, really happy to see Stu alive. Tom, whatever. I mean, Tom's cool, I guess. And and he's like, oh, how's how's Franny? And he's like, oh, the the baby came. And I don't know how to tell you this, Stu, but the baby has the flu. Like, oh, no. Yes. So Stu goes. They all go running back. To the hospital where Franny has had the baby, and it's okay what, though. What because did they name her? I don't remember. Abigail. Oh, Abigail, right. It's okay though because the baby's just miraculously better again. Yeah, I couldn't even possibly tell you like this part in the book because at this point when I was reading it, I was like, fuck you, Steven. Why hasn't this ended yet? And all <laughs> I remember. All I remember is that the last thing they say is that, like, Franny wants to go back to Maine at the end of the book. And it's like, what? We just built up this This entire society. society. And nobody exists anywhere else. You go back to Maine. She wants to go back to Maine. She wants to see the seasons is the reason. (laughs) Anyway, but nobody's there. It doesn't matter because the rest of this, they're like, oh, look, the baby's fine and healthy. And then Larry... Larry's wife, rather, because Larry's dead. Larry's wife and the feral kid are there, too. And they're like, oh, it's so beautiful. And is she pregnant? I think so. I think she's pregnant. Yeah. And the kid's like, uh, uh. 
Yeah. And they're like, yes, I know it's a beautiful baby. But no, what the feral kid sees is the floating head of Mother (laughs) Abigail, uh, which looks like it's on the glass. Yes. But it's actually looking down on the baby. Yes. It, it's visually it makes it's no 94, sense it's bad it's like bad oh graphics. you're a beautiful baby and things are gonna be all right yes and then we get an in memoriam montage of slow-mo yes. shots of everyone who died <laughs> over this sl- sad piano music might as well be in the arms of an angel yes and we get this <laughs> montage of everyone that died and then end of series yes it's over with. I mean, after the, the stand actually happened, I was like, why is the book still going, Steven? Well, you got your 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 falling action. Well, I know. And that's fine. But OK. Could you imagine if it was bomb blew up credits? You need something at the end. You need some kind of resolution. Right, but like when you've read as much of that book as the Oh, yeah. Is, I'm sure there were still another 300 pages. Yeah, and you're just like, are you <laughs> fucking kidding me? What is left? And then it's just all this shit about him with Tom and being sick and Nick helping them. And then they finally get back. And then there's still more about the baby. And I was, I was just so done at that point. <laughs> I don't remember it all. So is there anything we missed that you wanted to go back and mention, Kelsey? I'm sure there are tons of things that we skipped, but no, I am not going to go back through my notes. I have 15 pages of notes. (laughs) I'm not going back. I will say one thing we did not talk about is that the stand at its original 1,200 pages, and he had to edit it down before it was actually published, was Stephen King's version of... The Lord of the Rings. That was his idea. He's like, I'm going to do the Lord of the Rings. There's going to be evil. There's going to be good. There's going to be the unassuming simple people that come and destroy this great powerful evil. There's going to be a long journey. And there are other key points where this, you know, is a reference to this in Lord of the Rings. And this is a reference to that in Lord of the Rings. The stone that he gives to people in this series like the one that Lloyd carries around with him is supposed to be sort of reminiscent of the eye of Sauron. Like that's, there's just some references to Lord of the Rings throughout here. Interestingly, one of our listeners was a publisher at Doubleday when they re-released the longer extended version of the stand. That's the complete and uncut edition and he had worked on other things by King in the past. I'm not just going to go into all of his personal details or anything like that. But I just thought that was really interesting that one of our listeners actually worked on this one long version. So, Peter, thank you very much. And we're very jealous. I'm very jealous. So, Peter and Jen, thank you very much for listening. And thank you for writing in. We've had a few uh, back and forth emails and they're really, really great. They got us a wedding gift. I feel like we need to say this on the episode. It was so kind of It them. was the most incredible gift. And I cannot adequately express just how excited we were to get that gift. It was really cool. It comes from his publishing days and Coolest this independent label that he had and worked on some really cool limited edition Neil Gaiman stuff signed by the author. I was so excited. <laughs> Thank you very, very much, yes, Peter and Jen. Yes, incredibly kind. It was incredibly, incredibly kind. And thank you for sharing your stories with us as well about your work on working on Stephen King's books. Everything you've ever said about Stephen has made me so happy. <laughs> 
I love I love all the things that you tell me about him. Well, you tell us, but I feel like you're talking to me. Because <laughs> me and Stephen are besties. He just doesn't know it yet. But Peter tells this story, and I hope I'm not overstepping my bounds here by sharing this, about how originally it was cut down by 500 pages, he says. So, yeah, it does match my understanding where it was 1,200, and it was cut down to, like, 800. So Doubleday got the rights to publish the unedited version in the early 90s, and Peter tells this story about when he got the box with the manuscript. The manuscript was three feet tall, so he had to work on that one. It's really really cool. What Peter says is that all those extra pages were just kind of extra story about characters that kind of go nowhere and don't do anything. And it was probably appropriate for them to be cut out in the first place. We did. I I think I mentioned it earlier. Yes. There is a lot in this book that will just go off and you'll be like, oh my God, new character. So interesting. And then that character is dead. Yeah. And that will character will never get brought up again. And I understand that. King does that a lot. That's what King does. King is good at scenes, is Uh good at character development, not necessarily overarching plots. I would say he's not good at not wasting your time. (laughs) But the time, like he's wasting your time with stuff that's really entertaining to read. And that's really interesting stuff. And that's the conflict I have with Stephen King stuff is that so much of it. I'm very critical of. And then the rest of it is I really, really enjoy. So it's, ah, it's this, it's this conflict I have within myself about, about Stephen King. It's okay, Stephen. I still love you. (laughs) But yes, ultimately, Peter, thank you, Jen. Thank you very much. Uh, You guys are great. Thank you for writing in and uh, sharing your experiences with us. And thank you for the gift. That was really awesome. What do you think about, the people who played these roles, the actors, the actresses, anything to say about them? For the most part, I thought they all did a relatively good job. Mm-hmm. Molly Ringwald is definitely not how I pictured Franny, like at all. <laughs> sure. But I thought she did fine. Everyone talks about how awful she is in this. But it I think it's really because she did not feel comfortable with his writing. And I don't think she was yeah. very good at using that writing well. And she's just not the character. She's not the character, and it shows. I think I, I really liked Gary Sinise, but yeah. he wasn't really asked to do very much acting-wise. True. Lloyd was great. Lloyd, Miguel Ferrer was fantastic. Mm-hmm. I thought Randall was okay. He was fine. Yeah, he added some charm. Just kind of good. He added some charm to Randall Flag, which I thought was really effective. Um, I don't think anybody in this was actually bad. I have a soft spot in my heart for Laura Sangiacomo, knowing her from Just Shoot Me, uh, which I used to watch oh, when I, I was younger. Oh, I liked her as Nadine. Yeah, for the most part. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's it's a lot of okay. Ozzy Davis had a really short role, but he was great. I love him. Yeah, as the judge. There's a lot of silly, sappy I thought Larry stuff in here, though. Was Larry good? I liked Larry. I yeah. thought he did a pretty great job. Which is weird because he's not a big actor. No. Well, I mean, he's in stuff, but he's not like a big actor. Like I say, we got two movies here, or this series and the next movie, which we still have to talk about. They're just like who's who of character actors. So, with all of that said, we talked a lot about the stand. Kelsey. What do you think it has on Rotten Tomatoes? Maybe like 78? It has a 70 
Based on Stephen King's magnum opus of a novel, The Stand delivers six hours of vintage denim, questionable special effects, <laughs> and an all-star cast battling the forces of good and evil. No Metacritic or obviously no cinema score since it wasn't in theaters. Although there was like a theatrical release that was made, it was released on VHS as like a movie. Oh, yeah. And that would be impossible to right. follow. Yeah. So that said, do you think that's overrated or underrated? Considering we don't know how much these people liked the movie, just that 70% of critics liked it. I was going to give it a 75 yeah, I think it has I think it has a very strong 75-ness about it. It has so many problems with the sappiness, with the effects, with just not being able to understand all these characters because there's too many of them. So it it suffered from all those things. But I think it's a really pretty damn decent TV movie. Yeah. For, for the, I mean, TV movies are usually pretty shit, so 75. Yeah, a little Solid. bit higher, a little bit higher than what we gave the Shining miniseries, <laughs> which was you gave it a 73 and I gave it a 70. Yeah. So, yeah, a little bit higher. And apologies to you, Peter, I know in our emails, I said we were going to do this as a double feature because you, you mentioned how they're making the new one. Uh, but then we had an actual pandemic breakout <laughs> and now we're doing it with quarantine <laughs> speaking of quarantine kelsey before we get to our next movie horror trivia what holiday themed movie contained five interwoven stories that occur on the same block on the same night trick-or-treat very good okay cool and, and like i didn't go to halloween at all there i was like would they have known about holidays? <laughs> no, they're not interwoven. And there's more than five. And I was like, oh, trick or treat, duh. <laughs> okay, Kelsey. Did you know they were all on the same block? I certainly didn't. I mean, there's a geography to them where they're all kind of like, you know, they walk past each other. And yeah, anyway. In the original wreck, which Quarantine is based on. We didn't watch it. I know. Okay. One of the characters was also this important role in the crew. The cameraman? Yes, the cameraman is the character. What important role did he have in the crew? Is he the cameraman? He's the cinematographer, technically. Whatever. Yes, yeah, so Pablo in Wreck was the film's actual cinematographer, Pablo Rosso. But you never really see him in the movie anyway. You get... Our cameraman, I say our because we're filthy Americans, uh, English-speaking Americans. In this version, Scott, the cameraman, you actually see a lot more of him. That's one of the primary differences between this movie and Wreck, which we'll get to when we talk about both movies. I'll mention the differences. There aren't that many. They are really, really close together. But still, people have strong opinions about which one's better. Anyway, we're talking about Quarantine from 2008, directed by John Eric Dowdle, written by John Eric Dowdle and Drew Dowdle, based on the original Wreck, which was written by Jaume Balaguerro, Luiso Berdejo, and Paco Plaza. The movie stars Jennifer Carpenter, Steve Harris, Columbus Short, Jay Hernandez, Jonathan Shaich, and tons more people, because just like The Stand, this is a who's who of 
that person. What is quarantine about? A new news reporter is going on her first assignment to do an, a ride-along night with the firefighters. It's just supposed to be kind of a fluff piece. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately for them, they get a call, and it's a medical call, it's not a fire, and things go badly. Yes. They end up getting quarantined. That's the name. Now, the movie is $4 to rent and $10 to buy on most services, but it's also for free on Crackle. And I don't know if they're doing some sort of promotion or we watched on Apple TV and the app doesn't work right, but no commercials. Yeah, it was really nice. There were obvious places where commercials should go. Like when you look at the timeline, you see those marks where commercial goes here. Never happened. So we lucked out. I don't know if you're going to be as lucky, but (laughs) you can watch it for free on Crackle. Uh, should people watch Quarantine? If you've never seen either of them, I would see it just to kind of see it. Yeah. It's it's fine. I don't think it's terrible or anything. I don't think it's great. Um, I think it's worth seeing, though. Yes. Yeah, I think you should see it. Uh, and yeah, watch this one or watch Wreck. Watch whichever. Uh, the hardcore fans out there would recommend you watch Wreck. If you're not in the mood for reading subtitles, you can watch Quarantine and it's fine. Trust me. They're very similar. (laughs) You can take our advice or leave it, but when we get back, we will talk about 2008's Quarantine. Over the years, nobody's found. There have been numerous strange occurrences. No explanation. The government has kept hidden from us. We're in Los Angeles with a fire department. But one of them. Tape everything, you hear me? Tape everything. Was recorded on film. They won't let us out. Everyone's been evacuated. They're gonna let us die! What the hell's going on? I am not authorized to tell you. Quarantine. Rated R. October 10th. It's quarantine time, Kelsey. Why don't you get us started? How does quarantine begin? We meet Angela. She plays the sister from Dexter. That's how I know her. I think she may have been in it something else, but that's who she is. So it's Jennifer Carpenter, and horror fans probably know her first. Before she was on Dexter, she was in The Exorcism of Emily Rose, and... She was celebrated in that movie because she was able to make her body contort and twist in weird ways. And Oh, really? Is yeah. she a contortionist? I don't know if she's actually a contortionist, but she was just willing to do weird things with her body. And plus, let's just get this out of the way. She has a unique face. I think she's very pretty, but she has a unique face to her. And when you put her in an exorcism movie, she can do some really neat stuff to make her face seem disturbing. <laughs> So Exorcism of Emily Rose was like part of that exorcism resurgence. Yeah, I'm not a big exorcism fan, so I have I didn't see most of those. Yeah, but anyway, that's who it is. It's Jennifer Carpenter. Her name is Angela. She is a news reporter, and I think this is like her first night out. She does say, like a joke, she does say, you'd think I'd never done this before, and I think she hasn't. I think the implication is that she's new, but whatever. Mic down, mic down. There you go. Now go. I think I've never done this before. Because, like, the cameraman, like, fixes her hair and stuff. And he tells her, you're doing fine, as if this is her first night. That cameraman, Scott, is his name. Scott Percival. Uh, The actual actor's name is Steve Harris. I remember him and will forever remember him as the guy from The Practice. (laughs) 
Uh, I don't know why <laughs> he's been in a lot of things, but for some reason, it's just in my head as the practice from the late 90s, that legal show. Mm-hmm. So they do night pieces. Uh, it's kind of like those little things where you see on TV. It's like, oh, I hung out with the firemen today. And they yeah, wear the uh, hat and they go down the pole. You know, we saved a cat together. Like, that's kind of the shit that you see. So she's interviewing these uh, firefighters. And they're explaining that actually, surprisingly, 85% of their calls are actually medical, not yeah. fires. We've had conversations like this. I don't want to say in private, um, <laughs> but like off the air about this in the past, about how the requirements for a lot of firefighters to to be EMTs as well. We actually have a firefighter in the family. My my cousin-in-law is a firefighter. Um, really impressive guys, I got to say, the stuff that they need to know and they need to be on top of. One of my good friends from high school. He's a firefighter. Yes, Billy. yes, Billy, right. Yes. I got to say also that the ride-along is a simple but elegant premise. It gets you in that dangerous situation with a camera in a very natural way. So yes. if you're going to have a found footage movie, what a perfect premise. This was a great, yes, I really liked the way that they did that. It seemed very natural. Right. So uh, she's all excited. She gets to slide down the pole. Um, <laughs> she asked the guy, oh, she's glad she wore pants. How would you get down that thing in a skirt? And the chief's response is pantyhose help. Yes. <laughs> That's so bad. I'm glad I didn't wear a skirt. That kind of thing can really hurt your legs. Tell me, Bob, how do you get down that thing when you're wearing a skirt? Pantyhose help. Pantyhose. That's what they wear under their, what, their turnouts, right? Exactly. Fire pantyhose. retardant pantyhose. You heard it here. <clears throat> yes. They all seem to have a really good sense of humor, and they absolutely cross the line several times <laughs> in ways to make them seem real and human, you know? Yes. We meet the two people that she will be following who are Jake and Fletcher. Yes, so Jake is Jay Hernandez, and I was... Really surprised to find this out that uh, Jay Hernandez, Jake, he's the one who lasts the longest in the movie, and he's Diablo from Suicide Squad. He's also in the Friday Night Lights movie. Uh, as far as horror movies are concerned, he's There's a character. Friday Night Lights movie? Before the TV show, there was a movie, yeah. Oh. <laughs> With Billy Bob Thornton. Oh, that's right. Yes, coach. I remember yeah. that. And I remember being like, they're turning it into a show. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and he's also in Hostel, which, again... Kelsey and I are completely uninterested in. Not because I'm sure it's a good movie or whatever, but we're just not into that stuff. But also, uh, Jonathan Schrach. Schrach. Yes. Doing that thing you do. He's the I quit guy from that thing you do. I quit. I quit. I quit. I quit, Mr. Whatever his name is. Yes, uh, Jimmy is the character's name, but he was also in Prom Night, which we watched on this show. He's in the Prom Night remake from 2008, the same year this came out. That movie sucked so much. <laughs> so much. Can we just focus on that thing you do? Yeah. <laughs> well, if you watch Legends of Tomorrow, he is Jonah Hex. Didn't see that either. Which is funny because we were talking about how, like, 
you know, he's actually a he's an attractive man. And then we look up his roles and it's like, oh, he's Jonah Hex, the notoriously unattractive cowboy character from DC Comics. Cause I try and try to forget you, girl, but it's just so hard to do. Every day just doing that thing you do. Yes. <laughs> okay. The cameraman explains that he has tons and tons of film because they told him we want more for the B-roll. Also, great premise for him to be filming all the time. Exactly. They just explain that away in one line. The producer's on my ass all the time about how I don't have enough B-roll, so I'm filming everything. Yes. Perfect. Uh Uh-huh. We find out why firefighters have Dalmatians. I didn't know this. <laughs> firefighters apparently used to use Dalmatians because they got along well with horses. And the horses used yes. to have to carry their their water. Mm-hmm. So isn't that funny? Yep. And they just continue to have Dalmatians because it's a tradition. Mm-hmm. And they're they're good learners. Maybe not the easiest animals to... to uh... To teach, Chris but they're up there. Have one. No, we're not getting a Dalmatian. They're not. They're not great house animals. And I know a lot of people out there who have them. My buddy Lou, he used to have a Dalmatian, but they're very excitable, sometimes aggressive animals. So, <laughs> not the best for little kids, you know. They show them that they constantly have a ping pong tournament going, mm-hmm. and how every time there is a call, the oh, not ping reset. pong, it's uh, handball. Handball. She makes a joke that, oh, too bad we can't go into the locker room. And he's like, yes, we can. Uh-huh. And they go into the locker room and some of the oh, guys. This is the other big hose we have. And they open the shower when one of the guys is in there. Because apparently he's notorious for having a giant hog. <laughs> <laughs> My point is, is that they do a really good job of making all of this seem real and natural. And her excitement and enthusiasm is really, I wrote this down, pun unintended, Contagious? Infectious, I was going to say. <laughs> but, like, when she is smiling and happy, you kind of feel the same way. She does the cute, sweet girl yes. very well. Uh-huh. The whole, like, oh, my God, this is so much fun. <laughs> Let's do a race to see who can dress up faster. Yeah. Oh, my God, I totally won. That's so embarrassing for you. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, she doesn't do the stupid bubblegum no, no, voice. she's not an idiot. But... She's not an idiot, but that's what she's mm-hmm. kind of got going for. I'm the cute little sweet one that I yeah. get to do all the fun stuff, and all yeah. the guys think I'm so cute. That's what's going on here. So because of all this, they've gotten to know her a little bit. The two guys, Jake and Fletcher, are off having their own conversation. They, they've already explained to them, the mics are on at all times. Yeah. We can hear you. Mm-hmm. They've already explained that to them. Like, are you just fucking stupid? No, it's just they've been there for a while. They're not thinking about it. They've probably forgotten they're even mic'd in the first place. Well, they talk about how the guy from that thing you do thinks he can oh, have I bet sex you with her. 100 bucks, I can nail her tonight or whatever. 100 bucks says I can bang her by the morning. Oh, come I'll on. take that bet. <laughs> so much nice mic. But she's like not even mad about it. Like, not even a little bit. Not even, like... It's more like a disbelief, gross. sort of like, oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. And then they get their call. And I would say their first call, but this is the only call they're going to get tonight. Yes. They they get a call when they first show up, and they weren't there in time for that. Which is interesting to think about. Had they gone on that one call, would they even have still been there waiting for another call and gone on this fateful one? 
Who knows? Probably not, because they're there a long time waiting for a call. She does call him on it, though. She does yeah. say, like, not very dignified. And he's like, I'm a fireman because I'm brave and courageous, not because I'm dignified. Right. Yeah. It, it, it's when they're in the car and he's calling out the locations of attractive women as they drive by. He's oh, the that too. Yeah. Yeah. And then she's like, oh, there's I a nine, nine and two. And he's like, oh, nine and two, guys. Oh, man, that's a dude. <laughs> <laughs> But good on her for for doing, pulling that. Yeah, she is clever. I made her sound stupid earlier. My point was she's the, she's personable. Like you like you. She's like the new girl. Uh huh. That whole thing. Anyway, maybe not as ditzy as the yeah. new girl. Anyway, they get there and it's an apartment complex, and the police are there as well because a woman has just been screaming. The, the neighbors called the cops on her. They yeah. didn't know what was happening. The first person we meet is actually the landlord, Raid Serbedzija. Serbedzija? The bullet um, dodger. Yeah, who's Boris the Blade? Boris the bullet dodger. Why do they call him the bullet dodger? Because he dodges bullets, Avi. <laughs> so they go into her apartment. They tell her and her cameraman, stay back. But we all know that they're not going to because they're press, which is why the cops are not happy that they're there. Yeah, including one Columbus Short, who is the primary police officer. I know him from Studio 60 on Sunset Strip. He's the writer character in that, but he's been in a lot of other things. Dance movies and stuff like that, like Do Stomp the Yard. Oh, I never saw that. Yeah. Okay. She is foaming at the mouth. She's got blood all over her. And she's crying, okay? They're trying to calm her down. And remember, they've already told the press, stay outside. Of course, they go in, and you can't hardly see anything, so what does he do? Turns on his light. Turns on his light, which gets, which gets her to start screaming. And she ends up attacking somebody. At this point, it's a lot of... It's in the dark, and there's a lot of people moving. It's kind of hard to tell. But she attacks someone. Jennifer Carpenter yells at her cameraman, tape everything. Yes. Because this might be her big break. Uh -huh. This could be a huge story for her because she doesn't understand what's happening yet. When they get downstairs, uh, because now one of the cops has been attacked and they need to get him to an ambulance, they find that the doors are locked. And they're like, what the fuck is going on? Mm -hmm. So frustratingly, they will not tell you why they locked up the doors and it's very irritating, but then at the end, when they finally tell you, it does all make sense. Yeah. So you have that frustration in you throughout the movie, just like the characters do. Yeah, and you you wonder why. Like, how did the, the authorities know that this disease was there when we're just seeing the first signs of it right now? Turns out we're not. Yes. They have more information than we do or anyone else there does. But I got to say, this kind of rapid response, a little refreshing. Yes. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? It seems like a couple of people die here. I wrote. Well, we meet we meet a lot of people, okay. including the veterinarian who oh, yeah. is the dude from Ally McBeal, Greg German or German or whatever it is. He's that's always forever. He will be the dude from Ally McBeal. He's he also Richard Fish. He's also Hades from Once Upon a Time. And he's in Child's Play 2, which we haven't seen yet. It's on the list. <laughs> but yeah, he plays a veterinarian. He's the closest thing, aside from 
the firemen that they have to medical personnel during the scenario. We also meet the dude from American Horror Story. Yep. He's been in several seasons of American Horror Story. I stopped watching a couple seasons ago, but he was in almost all of them. Dennis O'Hare is his name, and uh, he's drunk at this time when they kick him out of his apartment because they're trying to round everybody up and get them all down there so they can keep track of everything and make sure everyone's safe. He's also how we will find out the cable is out. Yes. Some things have already started. Yeah, he's like, is that why my cable's out or whatever? Yeah. We also meet uh, Joey King and her mom. Joey King is really young at this point. Oh, the chick from Wish Upon? Yes. We know her from Wish Upon. She's also Ramona and Ramona and Beezus. She is Christine from the first Conjuring movie. Oh, that's Um, right. Yeah. She's one of the daughters. And... She's in this, apparently. She is sick, and so her dad took their dog, and they went out to go get some antibiotics for her. No, they took him to the vet. They took the dog to the vet. Yeah, the dog was going to the vet, and the dad was getting antibiotics for her. So he's, like, killing two birds with one stone. And we meet several other people, including a a couple who does not speak English, um, the landlord's wife. ailing father, the landlord's wife. An opera teacher with his his, uh, his protege, who it seems like there's a relationship going on there. Yeah, they don't explain why he's she's living they, with yeah, him. Yeah, they live together. And he really he's really proud of her he's and she's really talented. But he's also it's it's abusive because he is in a position of power over her. And, All she cares about is her dog. Right, yeah. She has a little dog. <laughs> Who runs upstairs and she freaks out. There's a lot of character building in this one where you just find out more about the human beings who live in this apartment complex. It's so funny that you say that because they're all going to die. (laughs) So it doesn't matter. Spoiler warning, literally everyone dies. Yes. A couple of people die here. They go back up to try and talk to Mrs. Espinoza. That's the woman who attacked them earlier. Uh-huh. It's very obvious, extremely obvious, and it's on camera that the woman is going to attack them. We've already seen that she's going to attack them. And yet... Well, she killed the cleaning lady first. Yes. Yes. And yet... The guy, when he shoots her... He's like, you all saw that. She came at me. Like, yeah. Flipping out. She did. You did the right thing. And he it's flips okay. out the cameraman because he's like, you got that on tape? Yes, I got that on tape. It's going to save your ass later. Yeah. Proving <laughs> that she was going to attack you. Like, it's the weirdest thing. Yeah, he has he has a problem. This police officer has a problem with the camera being there. A lot of the movie... Until it's in his best interest for the camera to be there. And all of a sudden, he's on the wrong side of the power structure. And now he's really interested in this stuff being documented. Uh, we'll, we'll see that a little bit later. Meanwhile, the cameraman sees a rat. He's like, oh, God. And then it just comes straight for him. It's running straight towards him. And what does he do? He steps on it and just smashes it. <laughs> smashes the just shit out of that it rat. To death <laughs> on his nice sneakers, too. <laughs> So that's when you're starting to wonder, hmm, rats running around, and he will say, did you see that? It was like the rat was coming straight for me. Yeah. So you start to wonder, okay, are the rats infected? Spoilers, yes, they are. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. They try to communicate with the government that is now outside. Now there's, like, helicopters. It's like army people are coming in, and they're like, what the fuck are you guys doing 
and they tell them we will send someone in to assess the situation shortly. And we find out that they think there's a possibility that it's a BNC. And what that stands for is biological, nuclear, or chemical threat. Yes, they overhear that. And they're like, what the fuck? Now they do something that is impossible. Okay. They try to use their cell phones. How can you turn off cell phones in one building? Yeah, you can't. (laughs) Um, I mean, I'm sure there are jammers of some sort which prevent signals, but you can't isolate it to a single building. Uh, It's not an exact science like that. But they do manage to eventually turn off the power. I just don't understand. Like, do they think we're that dumb that we don't know how cell phones work? Or are they that dumb that don't know how cell phones work? Well, they just knew that cell phones were a thing that existed and they needed to write them out of as a concern. And so they're just like, oh, they're not working. The government stopped it from working. It's like, mm, I mean, you can shut down entire towers and there might be jamming devices. But again, those devices would not be that accurate. Well, they certainly wouldn't be that accurate if you listen to the bay. <laughs> Right, where the Bay's problem is that because of the way it's structured, we know that somebody who lived in that town got a call out to her daughter because we're watching her daughter and she gets a voicemail from her mom, who we know is in the town where they're jamming those signals. So, like, anyway, that was the Bay. The people inside are starting to panic. They're realizing we are being isolated for some reason. Something is happening. And they're like, hey, but you know what? There's another exit. We can go out the back. Yeah. Well, they try that. What happens? They're confronted by the police, the SWAT team. They literally say, we will shoot you if you try to Mm -hmm. escape. And Jennifer Carpenter's like, are you getting this on the tape? Like, they need to see how they're treating us. And it's like, if you got out, which you don't. If you did, you don't think they would confiscate that shit right away? I mean, not that they're allowed to, but still. (laughs) Oh, they would. (laughs) (laughs) Something happens where the cop, he, the panic is really starting to sit in on people and the cop freaks out. Like, I think people are looking at him kind of like, what are your people doing? And he's like, I'm stuck in here too. But so many people are talking to him that way that he panics and draws his gun. Yeah, it's this whole thing. And it just shows you that like, Well, his partner was attacked. People do things out of panic that they would not ordinarily do. Mm -hmm. So the vet has been doing his best helping the people that have been attacked. So including one of the cops and that thing you do. Yeah. And he's like, there's nothing else I can really do for these people. And they're like, why? Do you not have the stuff? And he's like, no, because I've never worked at a fucking human before. I'm a goddamn vet. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I'm doing my best. (laughs) But he's like, they're not going to make it. If you don't get them out of here, they're going to die. Mm-hmm. And that is when that thing you do will get up. Oh, God. And walk on his broken leg. Uh-huh. With his bones just cracking. And- well, okay. So we didn't say what happened the first time, how he broke that leg the first time. So he was one of the people that got attacked. But while they were helping out the police officer, he was still upstairs. We didn't know exactly what happened to him. We just know he's left alone upstairs. Then all of a sudden, he comes plummeting down the middle of the stairway oh, to the yes. bottom floor. That made me scream. And and it breaks his leg. Because I wasn't expecting it. Yeah, we assume it's because he also got attacked by the woman that we thought was dead. But we, we don't know. We don't see it. Because the camera wasn't the wall- there. The, the, yeah. And yes, yeah, so now he's gotten up and now he's walking on his compound fracture. <laughs> oh 
<laughs> they end up shooting him down, and the vet finally says what he's known all well, along. Well, shooting him with a syringe. They knock him out. Yes. What the vet finally tells them, I think this is rabies. But yes. This is, this is the most insane case of rabies I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Usually, it takes months for you to start developing this stuff, and it's happening instantly. And here's the problem. So they, they recognize it, they identify it by tears, saliva, and fever, and he's, like, pointing it out on all the victims. They all have it, the aggressive behavior, all of this. And like you say, it's weird because it's happening fast. And the reason that's a real problem is because Jennifer Carpenter is like, well, isn't there a cure for rabies? And he's like, no. And they're like, well, don't people get that shot? And he's like, yeah, before they start showing symptoms. Once you start showing symptoms, rabies is a death sentence. You will die. And now these people are showing symptoms in a matter of minutes. Look, oh, her tear ducts, her salivary glands are constantly flowing. Right? She seems to be unable to swallow or speak. She has a fever. She's confused. She has some degree of paralysis and delirium. These, these are all rabies symptoms. Are you sure? Look, I'm, I'm a fat, okay? I, I've never seen it in humans before, but I know it. Tears, saliva, fever. Tears, saliva, fever. They have what she has, but here's the thing. Rabies takes months for symptoms to show. This is taking minutes. I mean, rabies, it never acts this fast. How's it cured? No, there's no cure. People get shots in their stomach. Don't they have heard about that? That's before symptoms start showing. Once symptoms show, rabies is 100% fatal. And again, you're sitting there as an audience member and you're starting to get really frustrated because now you're like, oh, come on. Now we're talking about some bullshit kind of rabies. Are you fucking kidding me? But again, the ending will make it all make sense. To an extent, yes. They end up talking in secret to the opera teacher and he ends up telling them. He has a TV upstairs. With rabbit ears. Yes, so they don't need cable. And they end up being able to key into a news report where the chief of police or somebody is talking about the the steps they're taking and that they're going to go in and clean it out, but the place has already been evacuated. No one's inside. And Jennifer Carpenter is like, why would they say that? Mm-hmm. What's the problem with this, Kelsey? <laughs> we talked about the chick from Wish Upon. Her father is outside of the building right now. He's gonna know, uh, no, because my wife and daughter sure as fuck weren't evacuated from shit. Right? Yes, so there are family members outside that know that they weren't evacuated, although that man's probably already been taken into custody. But also, there's several times where the SWAT team is shouting into the building, including one later time where they're calling in with a bullhorn back away from the door. Yes, I I wrote that down way later when it happened, so I wasn't thinking of that. But yes, that actually So I don't know what they they think they're getting away with here by lying and saying the place is evacuated. It's just, it's for the audience to make us realize that things are really bad. Yeah. And that their lives are expendable. Yeah. Not to mention, like... These news reporters, their news station is going to be like, uh, you certainly didn't evacuate our people. Yeah, uh-huh. If anybody knows they're there. You know, there's no... Well, all the people that work at the fucking yeah, fire uh, station. Yeah. Like, it's just... It's silly. It's real silly. It's just... Yeah, I would say it's an oversight. It's a plot hole. Or it's more plot that could eventually come out later, you know? 
somebody ends up attacking them. And the cameraman oh, yes. has to beat the person to death. I think it with might be the camera. cleaning lady or someone else. Yeah, or one of the one of the residents. Yeah, he we since all we see is what the camera sees, he beats her to death with the camera. And so we see the camera just ramming into her face over and over and over it's again. It's pretty until realistic she dies. looking yeah, too, uh-huh. I would say. And it was a cool effect having the blood splatter on there. Uh-huh. And it wasn't the most it wasn't the best looking blood but yes the effect is really cool and i kind of love the idea that the only reason that the person wasn't able to get to him is because he had a camera in front of him and hit the camera first and then he ends up having to clean off the camera when they have kind of a heart to heart like are you okay and he's like i'm fine i just need to clean this off yeah he at first he's upset i'm just fine you know cleaning Mm -hmm. off his camera but then later jennifer carpenter will start to lose it and he kind of has to walk her through that And they say they're going to send in the CDC for blood tests, which the vet tells us. It's pointless. You cannot find rabies by a blood test. The only way to confirm rabies, that's why this vaccine that you get before you start showing symptoms is presumptive. If you think you might have come into contact with an animal with rabies, you get that shot, Mm -hmm. whether you have it or not, because you can't tell until you're dead. It's a brain biopsy. That's how they tell if there's rabies. This is when they start to kind of become very paranoid about everybody. Some of the people in there will be like, where's their father? Isn't his father sick? I bet he's the one that brought it into the building. Then they turn on the woman with the little girl. Your daughter's sick. She probably brought it into the building. Uh Like they're all turning on each other. Yeah, because they're trying to make an account of where everyone is. And at one point the cop says, and the attic, who lives in the attic? Like, first of all, Why would you assume there's an apartment in the attic? Second of all, why would you assume there was somebody living there that wasn't already accounted for? It was really weird. But in any case, yes, there is somebody who lives in the attic. He's some guy from Boston, but they haven't seen him in months. Yes, this is when we get the shout out over the fucking loudspeaker where it's just like, come on, movie. uh The vet ends up getting stuck in the elevator, I think, with the cleaning lady or somebody. He ends up getting stuck with somebody. So here's what happened. So the dude from... American Horror Story, he tries to go back to his apartment and he ends up being killed by being trapped in an elevator with a rabid dog. That's right. And he dies and the dog is still in that elevator and it has no way of getting out because nobody's calling the elevator. uh, And now the power's out. So it's just a dog in an elevator that has rabies. But also the CDC comes in and their guys come in and we can't see anything. They camera keeps trying to get into this room and they keep getting pushed out uh, until they find that there's a window up high in the next room over in like the office. So you can see through that window and they can watch what's happening. And what's happening is they're drilling into that thing you do skull uh, in order to perform a brain biopsy because, yes, they think it has something to do with rabies. But in the process, he wakes up even after he had drilled into his skull. Hey, according to Hannibal, that yeah, shit happens. Uh-huh. <laughs> he wakes up and he attacks. And then there's a scramble and people are trying to get out. And the vet is left inside the room with and him. And Jennifer's like, it's wrong to leave the vet in there. And like, the we cop can't break says, the quarantine. Yeah, the cop says it would be wrong to let him out. Yeah. But when the CDC dude gets angry because one of his guys was also in there, he gets angry at the fact that the camera's there. That's when the cop 
grabs him, shoves him away from the camera and says, they have a right to shoot this. <laughs> Suddenly, when the cop is on the other side of that power structure, now he's interested in freedom of the press. Yes. Like, yeah. So. Well, also, I think after all the shit he's yeah. seen, it's like, uh, the public probably should know about this. <laughs> this is when the CDC guy will finally tell them the reason we knew this was happening was because some vet got a dog taken into their care with this crazy case of rabies. That's, that's when we find out that, yes, that is that led us Joey to you. King's dog. That's when everyone turns on the mom, and the mom's like, she only has bronchitis, and that is when... Immediately, perfect feral. timing. <laughs> Immediately, feral. Yes, and Joey King bites her mom. Just the sense of timing in a lot of moments from here on out through the rest of the movie is just like, everything's just perfect timing, perfect timing. And even before this, the dog in the elevator... Perfect timing. That thing you do, falling down all those flights. Perfect timing. Like, there's a lot of those moments which are a little unbelievable, but effective. They are effective, but yes, it is unbelievable. It breaks your suspension of disbelief, yes. Yes. I'm pretty sure that the cameraman axes a bitch in the face or something. <laughs> no, okay. I wrote down, axe that bitch's face. Okay, so... Ah. <laughs> uh... A few things happen here, and it's not really important, the order. Uh, they're all in one room talking about how they can get through another exit because Boris the Bullet Dodger has keys to, a, like, a sewer exit that comes up elsewhere in the city. And when they're talking about this, the opera singer, well, first of all, What's-Her-Face denies that she has been infected in any way, even though we find out later that she has. The Never believe people. Have yeah. you been bitten? <laughs> of course they're going to say no. Yeah. Check the goddamn body. But the opera singer freaks out and he wants to get out and he grabs a knife and he slashes his way through the plastic, opens the window and sniper shot right through the head. And everyone gets down. And apparently the CDC guy who is now inf infected has been in the room the entire time. And he goes feral. Everybody runs. And the old lady, who they said is gone, they don't know where she is, jumps in front of the cameraman right behind Jennifer Carpenter. And she's like, bah! <laughs> oh, shit. And then in jumps the fireman, the living fireman. He jumps in with a sledgehammer. Oh, it's a sledgehammer. And sledgehammers her to the face. It was awesome. And then he smashes her head in with it. It's great. <laughs> he just happened to have the sledgehammer at that exact moment. Well, that's, he, why, that's why I thought it was an axe, because firefighters hasn't been have carrying axes. It. No, they have sledgehammers, too, or it might have been in the room. There's no explanation for why he happened to have it at that exact moment, able to save the cameraman. But he does. That's impeccable timing as well. And then some guy will just wreck shop here. Well, this is when <laughs> the doctor attacks... Yuri, Boris the bullet dodger. Because he does his bullets heavy. Perfect timing right when he's telling them how to get through the, the oh, sewer yes. escape. Yes. Again, perfect timing right. Okay. All you have to do is. Oh, God. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so shit's going down. Almost everyone is dead or But I think turned. it's the fireman that just ends up wrecking up shop. Just yes. killing everybody. <laughs> so at this point, there's only the three of them left. There's the fireman. There's Jennifer Carpenter and there's the cameraman and they're trying to get out. They get attacked by the feral vet at one point. Um, they can't make it out through the back way. It's too infested to make it out through the sewer method. So they start climbing the stairs and they get attacked more and more. There's moments where they get attacked by people. At one point, though, the fireman gets attacked 
and in order to save them, he dies. Well, first of all, somebody gets their neck snapped, which we know can't really do. Yes, we don't see it. The neck is just above the camera line and snap neck. You're just like waiting for it. Happen, happen, happen. Oh, it's uh, it's the opera singer girl or whatever her name is. It's around this time that I wrote, the problem is this doesn't take a lot of talent. Right. I understand that when you do shots like this, long shots, one shots, you have to practice quite a bit. You have to rehearse so that you do it all correctly. I understand that. But, like, there's so much of this where it's just, like, the camera is just all over the place. Yeah. You can't tell what's happening. So it doesn't really matter to me how much you rehearsed this. I'm not seeing that. I'm seeing a camera flying all over the place. And like Chris said, I'm seeing when the camera needs to be still for those perfect moments. Mm -hmm. That's when it's still. Running around with a camera does not take talent. And I know a lot of people are going to disagree with me for a lot of different reasons, but that's kind of why it's really difficult for me to like found footage movies. It needs to be done very well. And I yeah. don't think... I really enjoy this movie. I think it's fun. I think mm -hmm. it's a fun movie to watch. I don't think it's necessarily a great film. Right, because, I mean, like you say, it doesn't require a... It requires a lot of planning, but not a lot of talent. I think you're right. Yes. I mean, I can... If I have my students do the same thing over and over and over again, they'll do it right. That yeah. doesn't mean that they put any effort into it. Right. Also, <laughs> at one point, Jennifer will start to hyperventilate and freak out. And... The cameraman will start to do zooms in and out, and I'm like, what is happening? Yes, the zooms is weird. Why is the zoom necessary? Because it's not like he's trying to fix the focus, because mm -hmm. that's completely separate. And, yeah, he's just zooming in and out as if to, like, like he's a WWE cameraman, and where they zoom in and out real quick every time there's a hit to make it seem like things are more kinetic than they really are. <laughs> well, but also... I feel like it's when she's freaking out and kind of crying and stuff. So I felt like it was kind of like, we need a Blair Witch moment yeah. where she's crying and upset. And we need sorry. the camera to be zoomed in on her. But why would I be zooming in? I don't know. Yeah. Uh -huh. So just go in and out a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Firefighter gets eaten. Yep. Very sad. When they get to the attic, why do they go to the attic? Because there's nowhere else to go. Because everyone who's died at this point is either dead because they died a violent death or they're infected. And so all these residents are just becoming zombie-like, effectively, and swarming them. And they have nowhere else to go but up. Yes. It was a really interesting idea to basically make a zombie movie but with rabies. Yeah. I mean, you can basically say they did that with 28 Days Later. Yeah. They're infected with rage. What? Uh -huh. <laughs> I mean, this is this is that, but they it try to that. give them a better explanation than just... I thought this was a better explanation. Yes. Yeah, that's what I'm Then I had a bunch of monkeys watch a bunch of violence, and now they're <laughs> infected with rage. But whatever. Not that I want to say bad things about 28 Days Later, but it is a stupid <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, at one point also he says, Angela, we're going to have to go through that door when they're in the apartment. It's like, why do you think these doors are going to lead anywhere? <laughs> like, what do you think that I, every fire escape is covered? Like, where do you think you're ultimately going here? There, But it's this like lizard brain thing where danger behind must go forward. And so they go in the one place they haven't been. They go in this apartment complex and they can't see anything. There's no lights. So he uses his camera for that. 
He doesn't use the night vision until later, and you might be wondering why, but when he uses the light, everyone can see the light. Which when he is uses not good. night vision, only he can see the night vision. So he uses the light whenever he can. And, and remember, people, the night vision only works if you're looking through the yes, camera. Yes, through the viewfinder, which yes. Which is why atrocious doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. When they get to the attic, she has to fumble for the keys. And the I, keys! I cannot tell you how depressed I am, but she did not say, the keys, the keys! Everyone says the keys. <laughs> it is a requirement so that I can put in the clip mm. from Halloween. Well, I, I think about, like, oh, it would have taken them way longer, but she talks through her process for how she figures out which key it is. <laughs> She's like, well, it'll be an old key because of this old door or whatever, and... I don't care! Yeah. <laughs> if you need to find a key, you need to say the keys, the keys! <laughs> the keys! Oh, the keys! God damn it. So what do they find in there? They find a bunch of scientific grade animal cages, a bunch of newspaper clippings up on the wall like they were put there like a madman. And the headlines say these things. Cult defector talks of Armageddon virus. Indigenous tribe burning their sick. Life on remote South Pacific Island wiped out scientists baffled. Doomsday cult suspected in weapons lab break-in. And so with this, we can put together a few things. The disease itself appeared somewhere in the South Pacific or was tested there. One or the other. The government was using it in their weapons lab testing, just like in... The stand. The stand. Just like in Outbreak. You know, the government, their bioweapons lab. At some point, this doomsday cult who warned of an Armageddon virus, breaks in and gets it. We assume that this man from Boston, in quotes, was part of this cult or had something to do with this scenario. But this is how this disease got out into the wild. And he had a bunch of animals, including rats, who one was found in the old lady's apartment. She was the first feral human we meet. That's what got the dog sick and why the dog had to leave. That's what got the girl sick. And so that's how this spread. And that's what was going to attack the cameraman when he crushed that rat. Yes. Where is this man? We don't know. So they end up going through and uh, into eventually the attic of the attic. And he puts his camera up there. Oh, and the door busts open. Oh, on its own. Again, with good timing. It's real bad. But in Cabin in the Woods, there's an explanation for why it happens. Yes. Exactly. Cabin in the Woods is showing how ridiculous it is when that fucking happens. Yeah. Oh, I didn't mention that there is just like in, I mean, because Cabin in the Woods, the, the portal to the basement is a reference to the Evil Dead or Evil Dead 2. Of course it is. But there's also a reel-to-reel recording device in this guy's apartment. It's 2008. It's not 1958. Why does this guy have a reel-to-reel recording device to record his notes and everything? It's so stupid. Mm -hmm. But yes, the attic apartment's attic door pops open on its own. Why would you think there is anything up there? Whatever. They go to look. Why wouldn't they if it busted open? I would. I'd be like, so bad. <laughs> I mean, but like, why go up there? So he puts his camera up there and he looks around and he sees something there. And you're like, oh, God. I wrote down, was that a baby? <laughs> it looked like a little kid. It looked like a baby. <laughs> it breaks the light. 
So he's like, okay, I'll turn on night vision. And then it makes that whir up sound like it's Sam fucking Fisher. <laughs> or like in, uh, it puts the lotion on its skin. Silence of the Lambs. Whatever he does, it goes, yeah, uh-huh. Bee! Does yeah, that thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> like cameras don't actually make that sound. <laughs> Those are for goggles that are self-powered and everything. Oh, so and... that's why his do do yes. that. Yeah, well, that's why when I say Sam Fisher, that's a reference to Splinter Cell, the video game, and you wear those goggles, and every time you turn night vision on, it makes that noise. Look, I'm, I'm gonna put the, the, the night vision on. I'll put the night vision on. Hold on. Just stay there, okay? Okay, okay. Okay, 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 okay I can see you now, okay? okay uh... Anyway, they've been making noise this entire time, and for some reason, this dude comes out and they have to be silent now. Like, <laughs> He heard you before. He knows someone's there. But this person in here, this what they call the thin infected man, who's been up there for months. Obviously, starving. it's the guy. It's the guy from Boston, played by Doug Jones, who is fucking everyone from fucking everything. Oh, the thin guy who's in all the movies? Yes. Okay. <laughs> He's in all of the... Guillermo del Toro movies. He is in Pan's Labyrinth. He's both Pan and the dude with the eyes in his hands. You've seen him. He's in everything. He's the fish man in The Shape of Water. He's Abe Sapien in the Hellboy movies. You know him. He's in everything. If you need a skinny guy in makeup, that's Doug Jones. He would have been the alien if he had been alive back then. Yes, absolutely he would have been. He ends up attacking the cameraman killing the cameraman and so all she has the camera and she's the only one left alive she gets attacked and the camera drops and with perfect perfect blocking i guess the camera lands facing her on the ground that famous moment it's on all the posters which sucks because it totally gives away literally the last moment of the entire movie it's also in the trailer i remember and like, well, she's, she's panicking. She's looking right at the camera. All the lights are out. So she can't see anything. But the camera can see her. This is the moment from this movie. And then something, it's Doug Jones, the thin infected man, grabs her and yanks her across the room. But we never actually see him in the shot. She just gets yanked out and she screams. And that's the end of the movie. They did the same thing with Wreck, though. Yes. On the Wreck picture poster. Uh-huh. It's her doing that, too. They fucked it both ways. I don't well, know I mean, why. at least Wreck wasn't like mark. I don't think Wreck was marketed that way originally. Just only after it became, oh, this is the movie that Quarantine is based on. I think Quarantine did it first. I could be wrong, but I think Quarantine did it first because idiot Americans, right? Mm-hmm. Speaking of, if Wreck, I were her, I'd be pissed. What that your moment got taken? Yes. Or that everyone got to see your moment, whether they saw the movie or not. You could look at it either way. But anyway, now that we're talking about Wreck, I'd like to talk about the directors. They have said that they were dissatisfied with the outcome of this remake. I wrote down, oh, what? Because yours was some fucking masterpiece jerk off motion. I remember liking the original more than I liked this one. But it is the same movie, virtually. Get over yourself. We're not remaking... Citizen Kane here, okay? Just get the fuck over yourself. So let's talk about the differences between Quarantine and Wreck. Okay. I already mentioned that in Wreck, 
the cameraman Pablo is played by Pablo Rosso, uh, who is the actual cinematographer for the film. So it doesn't necessarily mean that it was that it was filmed better because, yes, this movie had a cinematographer as well who was controlling the camera. But personally, I think and I've heard reports from others and you complain about the cinematography in this movie that the cinematography is better in Wreck. They cared more about it as opposed to Americans who are like, it's film footage, you can do uh whatever the fuck you need to do. Exactly. The Wreck version of Angela, Jennifer Carpenter's character, her name is also Angela. You mentioned how Jennifer Carpenter is like inexperienced. This Mm -hmm. Angela is more experienced. She doesn't get as hysterical. Okay. Which is fine. It's just different. Well, it's the American girl in distress. Sure. But then again, everybody has a panic moment. So. Yeah. There are resident differences as well. Like, the characters aren't the same, but this doesn't really matter, except for the fact that Quarantine spends more time on its characters. Wreck kind of ignores them. They're just fodder. But doesn't matter. That's why I said it, it, this doesn't really matter. I literally have written here. <laughs> Wreck used unknown actors, whereas I said earlier on that Quarantine is a who's who of that person, mm-hmm. right? But quarantine does give those actors more time to actually play roles that are real characters that have their own personalities, their own wants and desires. They freak out in their own way. They're all realized characters in this one, whereas they're not. Wreck is more concerned with the horror element. Quarantine is more concerned with the found footage element, the fact that it's real. Well, personally, I think they should have gone more with the horror element because why do these characters matter? They're all going to die. (laughs) Well, you can say that about literally any horror movie ever. You cannot say that. Right, but you're talking about how they give them so much character development. They do, Mm -hmm. but there's so many characters. I don't remember them But the point is you care when many of these characters die. Like I cared when the vet died. That's pretty much it. And when the firefighter yeah, died. This, this, this but he's the kind a of main stuff that I'm character. Talking. He's not uh, the, the, the one firefighter. What about the other? What about that thing you do? I wasn't sad when he died. I was sad because I couldn't well, keep okay. seeing that you thing you You should all do. know that Kelsey is a broken human being <laughs> and does not feel empathy for anyone. That's not true at all. <laughs> but my point is, is that she's able to say, because they die in the end, why should I care about getting to know this character? Like, well, because it makes their death more meaningful. You know, you actually care when you when they die when, like they, I said, when you know them better. I only cared when the vet and when the firefighter died. Mm-hmm. I cared about more. Like I cared about the fact that the mom was unreasonable. Oh, I was just annoyed with her. I thought she was being unreasonable. How on earth do you not recognize that your daughter is feral? When her daughter bites her and then runs off, she tells the daughter to hide. I tried. Your daughter just murdered you, gave you rabies, and gave it everyone else here rabies. I tried to explain to Chris what a mother's love is like. But this is my point. <laughs> this is exactly my point. I may not like her, but I believe her as a mother. She is a realized character, and that's exactly my point. That's it. But if you want to focus more on the horror of it all and not as much on the realism, real characters, real premise, that kind of stuff, well, Wreck is the movie for you because in Wreck, it's demonic possession. I thought so. That's why when this whole – and I, 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 I'm I, like 99% sure I've seen both at some point. But I was sitting there and I was like, I don't remember it being rabies. 
Well, uh-huh. it doesn't really, really matter because it's just a surface level excuse for why everything goes the way it does. But I feel like the the rooting it in realism was better for me. I liked it a lot. Yeah. I thought the, I thought the premise was great. I just thought that, like, I probably wouldn't watch this again. It's fun to watch once, but once you know all the scares, it's kind of like, there's not a lot that compels me here. I'd be willing to watch Wreck again. I'd watch watched Wreck Quarantine. again to see if the differences. Yeah, but I, it's been years since I've seen it. And I know we keep saying Wreck, it's Record, but nobody <laughs> calls it Record. It's R-E-C. Come on. Uh, and isn't wreck. that actually recording? Or whatever. Well, because when you put the wreck on, yeah, it means, it means it's, it's recording. recording. Yeah, uh huh. But people will call it record. It's like it's wreck. Everyone knows it's wreck. Come on. Well, if you call it record, you're stupid. <laughs> Should be recording. <laughs> anyway, I remember it's been years, but I remember I saw it in order wreck and then quarantine. I seem to remember liking wreck more. But quarantine isn't bad. And they're not that different. And there are a lot of good things that quarantine changes and it's better. So like the the idea that people have, I mean, because usually we talk about movies where they, we, they jump from culture to culture and you actually end up with some not bad stuff. It usually just feels like they just dumbed it down a yes, little bit for, for the American audience. Absolutely. <laughs> where where you tend to find more bullshit is the time jump recreations. Yes. Something was made in the 70s and they're remaking it now. Yes. That's usually where the remakes are like, oh, that was totally unnecessary. We didn't need that. But when it's a culture change, sometimes, yes, you do need to remake it because people aren't willing to see things with subtitles and there are cultural references that won't play as well in other areas. That it's just lot, reality. That's a lot. Like when you watch like Japanese horror. Yeah. There's a there's a lot of times where I'm like, I bet that has some kind of cultural meaning. That yes. Going oh, way I'm sure over that's my head. really scary to them because they were told stories about this when they were children or something like that. We just weren't. So yeah, it, it's not real to us. Sometimes cultural remakes make sense and they can still be good. So the people out there that are like, man, why remake anything? Like, come on, you're just. You're not thinking. You're you're just you're stamping your foot down and you're being unreasonable. This is fine. It's a fine remake. In some ways it's better than the original, but I think ultimately the original's probably better. But again, that's based on a years old recollection. That being said, what do you think the movie has on Rotten Tomatoes? A 78. Try 56%. Wow. Quarantine uses effective atmosphere and consistent scares to stand above the crop of recent horror films. But still only 56%. Probably has something to do with this cultural thing. Because then when you go and you look at Wreck, Wreck has an 89. Mm. And they are virtually the same fucking movie. (laughs) Plunging viewers into the nightmarish hellscape of an apartment complex under siege. Wreck proves that found footage can still be used as an effective delivery mechanism for sparse economic horror that's you could say the same fucking thing about quarantine (laughs) just makes me so mad but the metacritics are even lower metacritic of 53 for quarantine rex metacritic is 69 nice and cinema score for quarantine of c do you think that it's overrated or underrated oh it's definitely underrated what would you give it i was gonna give it a 73 i was gonna give it a 77 you Higher like this 70s. More than the stand. 
Well, I like to stand for different reasons. I think I'm thinking more of a quality basis here. Somebody's getting punched later. <laughs> you know how I feel about these. I know. Stephen King miniseries. After watching Quarantine, I'm like, I, after talking about it, I probably would have given the stand a higher grade. You think? <laughs> Do you want to redo? Your, you want to give it an 80 or something? No. Come on. No, no. Yeah, exactly. But I enjoy the stand far more than I enjoy mm-hmm. Quarantine. There's That's nuances here with ratings that you can't. King. You can't directly compare two movies that are two pieces of media that are so different. It's pointless. There are a bunch of nuances that go into our scoring, whether we think it's a better made film, whether we enjoyed it more, whether you know one had more errors than the other. Is and, fine. Mm-hmm. I think it's fine. Yeah. And it's fun to watch the first time. After that, meh. And when you talk about all the things that are wrong with it. Okay. All right. And that is 2008's Quarantine, thus ending our pandemic episode. I guess not pandemic, because quarantine isn't a pandemic. Uh, but our infection episode? Mm-hmm. Our quarantine episode, I guess. Yes. Well, but they weren't quarantined. Uh, oh, some people Stu were. Was. Yeah, uh-huh. Stu was. <laughs> what are we watching next week, Kelsey? Next week is a recommendation week. Woo, Okay. Been a this, while since we've done one of those. Yes. <laughs> this comes from Dad Wears Glasses. He's somebody that we talk to on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> we're going to do our third found footage movie in a row. We're doing the Blair Witch Project. Oh, we're finally doing the Blair Witch Project. Yes. We've done a lot of found footage. Let's go back to not the first one, but the one that sparked the... The one that found footage era. Yes. And he recommended that we watch that with Hell House LLC. I've heard about this movie, have not seen it. Is it a is it more than one story? Is it I do not know. I, I'm thinking of it like VHS. I don't know. I do not know. So yeah, we'll we'll pair those up. Thank you for recommending them. Yes. Thank you, I'm, Dad wears glasses. I'm interested in Seeing Hell House LLC, I've seen Blair Witch several times, and I feel like we just watched it not that long ago. We watched the sequel, which we actually not not Book not, of not Book of Shadows, no, no uh, the one Blair where, Witch, is and what it's we called. thought that was actually decent, right? It was, it, I ugh, God, I can't remember anything about it, so that might tell you something. But I remember it, thinking this isn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. We watched it right around the time that we watched Rings. Yeah, because which I'm pretty was sure terrible. Rings was the one that was like, Jesus, that was bad. <laughs> and then Blair Witch were like, damn, that was actually kind of uh, not, okay. Not that bad. Yeah. I think especially so if you get the chance to see Blair Witch, you might not have seen it because you just assumed it was gonna be bad. You might have heard bad word of mouth. Oh, a modern sequel to such a classic. 1999's <laughs> Blair Jesus Witch. Christ. Um, you but, can but, all guess what I'm going to have to say <laughs> about the Blair Witch Project. But in that one, you actually go into that same house and you see a lot more where it frustrated a lot of people, the original, where you go into the house, you see nothing. You see a man just fucking standing there. And then the movie ends. <laughs> you just ended the movie. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I spoil it? Yes. Yes, you did. Did I spoil the nothing ending of the Blair Witch Project? <laughs> Either you know what I'm talking about or it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but the point is, in the sequel, you end up getting more content there. And I actually kind of liked that. I I see how people could just write it off as like, 
oh, we're bringing you back to the witch house. But no, I was like, oh, you know, I'm actually really curious about what's in that house. And so we got to see it. But we're not watching that one. No. We'll watch it eventually. We're watching the original Blair Witch Project and Hell House LLC. So thank you for recommending those dad glasses. Until then, you can always reach us at our website, podcemetery.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Pod Cemetery. I also just started up a YouTube page, probably where I'm going to be dumping uh, episodes. If you want to watch them there, watch. If you want to listen to them on YouTube, but also where I can store some of the clips that I posted in the past for posterity. So subscribe to us on YouTube. Don't forget to subscribe in your podcatcher of choice. Five-star written reviews are also a huge help, and thank you all for listening in the GD First Place. We love each and every one of you. Until next week, I've been Chris. I've been Kelsey. And this has been Pod Cemetery. But before we go, Kelsey, any last words? Hey, Bluto, you ever hear of a little number called Freedom of Speech? Bill of Rights? Any of that ring a bell? Folks, I've just been ordered by my uninvited fascist guests to shut down, and I've refused. I think... Oh my god, what's happening? I think we're in big trouble. And now, by request from Bay Ridge, Larry Underwood, and Baby, can you dig your man? Well, Baby, can you? will always be our number one enemy, mm-hmm. as Winston Churchill once said, although he said it better. We have nothing to fear but fear itself. Yes, that and... That wasn't Winston Churchill. It wasn't? No, that was one of our presidents. Oh, Roosevelt. During the Great Depression. Was it Roosevelt? Well, let's find out. So FDR. Like something- yeah, FDR. Yeah, it was his first inaugural address. So just go back and say say whatever you want to say. You said fear. Don't try to think of the name of it. Um, I think we just covered it. It was a double feature. Disappointed. So hold on. Let's uh, let me let me find this. Disappointed is from Hercules. Lieutenant Dan. You got magic legs, Lieutenant Dan. Hold on. Is it Apollo 13 or Apollo 11? 13. It's it 13. Is. It's actually 13. Yes. I guess the, the, the movie, the horror movie is Apollo 18, isn't it? I don't know. The next character we will meet is Molly Ringwald. Yes. Thought I would remember it. I did. Franny, come and see me, Nick. You and all your friends. <laughs> they even say, fuck, I can't think of what it's fucking called, uh, but the one in It. Um, I didn't think they were real. I guess they could have been real. No, I mean, we see rats. Right, but it could have just been a computer animation, right?
94 on television? No, those were real. Uh, God's hand was there, and I don't know how to tell oh, you this, God. but that's not real. No, it's not. <laughs> it also doesn't make sense, but we'll get to that. <laughs> I'm the rat man. Bold, black, beautiful. Now that the council say, is meeting. I've been to Texas. Barbecue ain't that great. Okay, we've been to one place in <laughs> Texas. You're going to get some people very upset when you say that. I don't care. Yes, we we went to like a couple different barbecue places while we were there. I think two different places. Two. And yeah, both of them were, eh, they were okay. California does it better. <laughs> Telling you, location really doesn't matter that much for most foods. Some foods, it very much matters. But anyway. You want to go into a sushi place in the Midwest? Yeah, no, I do not. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> anyway, M-O-O-N, that spells toolkit. Nadine, what? We're damned. I know. It's the judge. So Tom Collins has been at this place. Tom Collins. That's, that's some, that's some bullshit ass bullshit. <laughs> that is some bullshit ass bullshit. He sacrificed his own son. We can't sacrifice two of our guys. Three, actually. He didn't sacrifice anyone. <laughs> If it's a prophecy, it's not a sacrifice. He was created to be sacrificed, so he fulfilled his purpose. That's not a bad thing. Anyway, this is not going in the episode. We're not going to get Christians mad at us. In the arms of an angel. That's what we pretty much always find. Usually remakes are pretty... Much what the other movie was. Like, The Ring? It's pretty much the same. Exactly. Oh, you mean, like, culture-to-culture culture Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Usually, they're pretty okay. But time-period-to-time-period time period remakes tend to right. suck. Yes. But foreign remakes are usually pretty much the exact same yeah. thing. But also, that makes you ask why it needed to be made in the first place. But, like, well, because crowds will see a movie if it's in English. They won't see if it's in another language. <laughs> Uh, our landlord just texted us. It's a Jesus thing? No, it isn't. It's the sun making a cross. Oh, no. I don't know if she meant to text that to us. I doubt it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Awkward. Okay. okay. <laughs> um. Let me just make sure you understand what I understand. So we're talking about the same thing. Not so they, the attic exit? No, there is no attic exit. Don't they go through the attic? At the end of the movie. Oh. Because they have nowhere else to go. But that's my, I have a, where do they think they're going? <laughs> insidious tribe burning their sick. And not insidious, indigenous. Indigenous tribe burning their sick. He's the fish man in the water movie. What was just won the best picture. What's um, it called? It's like underwater. There's something, something. in the water. No, something it's, about water. Something about water. Lady in the water. No, it's not Lady in the water. <laughs> Hold on. Water world. Watership down. No, stop it. He's the fish man in The Shape of Water. What are we watching next week, Kelsey? You weren't ready. No. Happy Easter. Not happy Easter. No, nothing. I should have said that last week. You should have. Until next week, I've been Chris. I try and try to forget you, girl, but it's just so hard to do. I'm 106 years old and I still make my own bread. <laughs>